my laptop. I it's, I had to get a new one because I dropped my old one in a very unfortunate turn of events, and I <laughs> ran that one from scratch because I stupidly got, didn't get a big enough hard drive to just copy everything over. And oh, you, man, it is it's it's awful. It's awful just uh, trying to get everything. What a remember all the weird stuff you have installed. Rookie move. Well, no, because I had to buy it on emergency. Yeah, I was traveling. Get the one that's get the one that's in the Apple Store, yep. and they've only got like the five twelve or whatever. They had, they had one with five twelve. Yep, okay. and so I bought the big one with the biggest hard drive that I could get. So, yeah, I could see that, and that, that that's that's really where it sucks that you can't upgrade shit like that anymore. I know, because <laughs> I would just, Bless. I would just, <laughs> I would just. Uh, uh, Buy the one, to, you know, if you could. Yeah, you should just sell the whole machine. But what, what I would do is yeah. if I had to buy like an emergency one and got like 512 instead of one terabyte. Uh, and in the hypothetical world where you could swap it out, I would swap it out when I could and tell myself I'll just, you know, sell that 512. And then the 512 will just sit on a shelf in my office for 10 years until it's worth nothing because it doesn't fit in any more computers. <laughs> Oh, that's right. I, I don't. I don't think I've ever actually. I, I rationalize buying new things by saying I'll buy the old thing, right. but I never. I never ever actually sell the old thing. I think I could actually profit by hiring a personal assistant in at least the first month and have this assistant just, just to sell your old just stuff. Just sell my old <laughs> shit. I believe that I can. I can. I can hire an assistant at a at a very generous <laughs> hourly rate and <laughs> still come out ahead based on all the. Electronics in my it's office so true. that I really know oh, so true. should sell. Ben, how you doing? Yeah, I'm. I'm doing okay. How are you? Uh, good. You didn't take this bucks. The bucks lost too hard, did you? You you knew they were. Uh, uh, it's complicated. I, I I'm I'm refusing to deal with it emotionally and stuffing it into a dark place that will come out in an unexpected way ten years down the road. For those of you who don't know, Ben Ben is a, uh, a lifelong. Uh, well, his favorite sport is is basketball and pro basketball at that. And his favorite team is is his home team, Milwaukee Bucks, and they uh, they were in the playoffs this year. First time in a while, right? I mean, the Bucks have uh, uh, no, they're there, they're there uh, last year. Uh, they, I mean, the, the the problem with the Bucks is they are they are a uh, beacon of mediocrity. Uh, they, they, they've they've regularly they're either not in or they're in like the eighth seed for yeah, many or years. pick up a seventh seed, and, you know. Right, which which is fine. The problem now is we have Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is you know like one of the top, you know, I think everyone agreed to top ten. I would. How would you? How do you pronounce his last name? I just know. I just say Giannis. I, 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 honest to God, I, I don't, I don't even try. And I've got on my wife's side, we've got family that's Greek. So I mean, I'm used to trying to pronounce Greek names, but man, how do you say it? So. Because it's not a Greek name, it's a Nigerian ah. name. It's Adenakumpo. Ah. So the original spelling is actually it's very it's very easy to it's very easy to spell because it's it, it's quite straightforward. Hmm. Um, let me let me see if I look it up here. So the official spelling was oh, where is it? Oh, A D E T O K U N B O. So you just you just say it how it looks. Ah. Well, show me that. Well, you got paste that into the chat because I can't spell it verbally. You know, you can't tell me how something's spelled, and and I can't I can't see it. Well, that makes yeah, so much sense. Thing. So they so what they did is they took his Nigerian name and then they they you know his family they moved to Greece, Greece, Greece oh. Greciaized it. Oh, yeah. well, that's great! Oh it. man, that name! I, oh man, if I were doing a play by play, I would just have that. <laughs> I would have that on the paper in front of me, spelled like that. That's like a phonetic yeah, so spelling. It, it's actually right. It's it's actually not that hard to pronounce at all. Adeta Kumbo. Just, just the is that right? Am I saying Adeta it right? Adeta Kumbo. Adeta yeah, Kumbo. You, you emphasize the. the yeah, it's, it's more the you said Ade- it right, but it's more the emphasis of the syllable. Adetokumbo. Adetokumbo. Um, 
Adetokounmpo. Yeah. Adeta. Giannis Adetokounmpo. Yeah. So he was, um, yeah. So when he got Greek citizenship, he the the, the spelling of his name changed, which wasn't until actually uh, May May 2013. But um, so yeah, that's why. That, 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 that's well, why he's uh, he's definitely top ten. I don't I don't think I could think if they if they decided to have a new draft and every you know like. Every player is eligible for the draft again. Uh, I I would say he'd go before ten easily. Especially oh, if there was a new draft, he'd be top. He'd be top three. Yeah. He might even be top one, just because he's only twenty three years old. Well, so. what I, 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 what if what? But what if they did it every year? Like like the age thing is is unfair. If we're gonna if we're gonna have a hypothetical, we're gonna draft again. You know, I'm saying though, if you were gonna pick up a player, you know, like like if every season started as a pickup game, uh, and you only had him for one year, because the next year you're gonna do the same thing. I still think he'd be top ten. Yeah, I think he'd probably be five or six. Uh, you know, LeBron, Curry, uh, Durant, and Harden go first, yep. and then I think Anthony Davis and Giannis would be the next two. Yeah, uh, and in in some order. Yeah, uh, I think Giannis's advantage is he he handles the ball more than Davis, whereas Davis needs someone to give the ball more. But I mean, Davis yeah. has just been he's a year older and it, or a couple years older, and it's really showing. He's been yeah. absolutely incredible these playoffs. Uh, but if you were starting from scratch again, just given his age, uh, he would probably be the number one pick. Yeah, that's, um, that's good. That's a good bet. 23 I mean geez I mean it's it's it, you know the old days that's when the players that was when they were rookies you know what I mean I mean he's got a could it, you know he has a whole career ahead of him yep absolutely right. but but it, you know the point is it makes it way worse it makes the Bucks organizational incompetence and lack of queers of command and the ownership infighting uh, and all, like just no plan having no plan for the future just kind of scruffling along season by season that's fine when you're just kind of resigned to being a small market middling team you can enjoy the rest of the league which is how my basketball viewing experience <laughs> has gone it is five million times worse when you like the most difficult piece in winning a championship in the NBA is the most difficult feat in team sports by far like there's only five teams i think that have won more than three championships mm-hmm. and like 70 percent of the championships have been won by those five teams like like the reality is it's very 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 hard to win and you because you need a few ingredients first and foremost is you have to have like a top a top five player maybe a top 10 player but realistically a top five player and we have that and and yet <laughs> everything else with the team is just slathered in incompetence yep. and it's and th- this series is a perfect example just terrible coaching terrible habits lots of mismatch pieces and we lost to a team missing you know two of its best players yep. and and it's embarrassing so friend of our know. friend of the show Paul Cafasis and I were talking about this um, now he's, he's he's Paul and I are not as into pro basketball as you but Paul is is a Boston Celtics fan that's his home team and I, I, you know I, I, I when I was a kid I was a big time Celtics fan because I loved the bird era Celtics and, and basketball was my sport that I played that was the only one that I had really had I like baseball and I wish to hell oh how I wished I could hit the baseball but I, I I everything I hit was uh, like a like a practice ground ball right to the shortstop every every goddamn time. That's uh, funny. So I'm the exact opposite as you. I, I wa- desperately want to be good at at basketball, right. but I was much better at baseball. Well, baseball was by far was was probably the sport I was best at. Basketball was my was my game, and I could shoot. And I was a little slow, uh, and I would play pickup games in college. And and as soon and I but swear, you're tall for people who haven't seen. I am you. a little tall, and and so I, I would in Drexel we'd be we I would play a pickup game, and immediately like you know like you know five minutes in, uh, 
people who I'd never played with before would start calling me bird. Uh, cause you know, it's a lot of black people, a lot of black guys. Uh, and I'm, you know, maybe like two or three of us were white and I could shoot the three and I could pass. And they're like, Oh, check out Larry bird. And it was, I, I would, I would be like, ah, come on. And then inside I was like, ah, oh, that's my dream. <laughs> so I love the bird era Celtics, but I, I you know, once it, once Jordan retired, I, I got away from the NBA for a long time. And you know, I, I root for the Sixers now. I, I like the way these, this team plays. So anyway, Sixers are in the playoffs. Bucks are in the playoffs. Sixers won. Bucks were playing. The Celtics took it to seven. And if they would have won game seven, it would have been Bucks Sixers. And I, <laughs> before that game seven, I tried to entice Ben <laughs> into booking, booking a trip to Philly where we, we could go, see, go see the Bucks and Sixers play and to, <laughs> to book it before the game. And I couldn't get Ben to bite. Probably. I, I, I'm a Bucks fan. I, I, I anticipate the worst. Always. The, 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 on, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is always an oncoming train. So, the, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's going to be a replay of the 80s, I think, because, because the 80s, it was always the Celt, it was the Celtics, Sixers, and yep. Bucks that were the top of the conference every year. Yep. And then either the Celtics or Sixers would knock the Bucks out in the second round of the playoffs and they'd play in the conference finals. Yep. And then the Celtics would usually win, but the Sixers won occasionally. Yeah, but I think it's going to be the same, except the Sixers are going to be the best of, of the three. Yeah. So in this case, I think the Buc- one of those two will knock the Bucks out, the honest Bucks out in the second round every year and then the Celtics and Sixers are going to play and the Sixers are going to win most of the time that's my that's my prediction of the Eastern Conference for yeah. the next I was too young I was too years. young to remember it uh, specifically at the era except just you know it's like my dad would be flipping through and would you know would you know my dad's a sports fan would watch but in the early years of that rivalry the Sixers actually had the better of the Celtics because the Sixers beat the Celtics in the final in a con- Eastern Conference finals in the 80 then went on to lose to the rookie Magic Johnson Lakers. And then 81, the Celtics won it all. But then in 82 was the year the Sixers won it all. So two out of those three years, 80 and 82, the Sixers beat the Celtics in the, fi- in the Eastern Finals. That's right. Well, maybe it, it could turn out that way, particularly yeah. if, if, you know, we'll see how Embiid's career goes. I mean, if he's... You know, in the long run, it will stay on the court. That that could end up being the case. I mean, Celtics are obviously set out phenomenally well. The Sixers are. They all have a long term process, a plan. That's the other thing about winning a title. You need that key player, but then to get all the pieces to fit and under yep. the salary cap and all that sort of stuff, like it, it, it requires a multi year plan. Yep. And the Bucks can barely plan their next five minutes, yep. much less like quite literally if you watch their games, yep. much less the next five years. So, so Paul Paul Cafasis and I were talking about this the other day uh, about this and. I think that uh, I think this is I, I don't know enough about hockey. So forgive me, those of you who are sports fans and, and who are hockey fans. Uh, but I kind of think hockey is more like baseball, basketball, pro basketball in the regard that I'm about to talk about, which is that the best team as very likely the better team is but more, way more likely to win in basketball than in any other sport. Uh, baseball, yes. there's so much luck involved uh, in the postseason, and 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 a single person, a pitcher, and how well that pitcher does in any given game, uh, and and it's just the nature of baseball. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, there's nothing quite like it where you know you, you could have two guys on base and a guy hit, hits a home run right down the line, and two feet one way it's fair and a three run homer, and two feet the other way it's foul, and you get nothing. There's there's just nothing like that in basketball. There's no one possession in a game you know where so much can swing on such small variants like you know which way is the wind blowing um so baseball it really takes a lot of luck uh and 
and football. I think yeah, I think hockey because hockey you have the goalkeeper or this goalkeeper, the goalie right. that uh, can get hot and right. can impact the game right. uh, like like hugely. So I think hockey is probably more in the middle. But basketball is that, that's why it's the hardest sport to win because right. it consistently the best team wins. And if you're the best team one year, you're extremely likely to be the the, the, the best team the next year. Like it's a sport of dynasties. Right. Like, it's just the and, and especially because the thing with basketball is there's so much return to having the best player. I mean, like, so it's, but it's not like a goalie where you can get hot and control the game. But if you have the best player over a seven game series, you're, you're just going to win most of the time. Right. And again, that's, <laughs> that's why it's so frustrating watching that last series where we had the two best players and still couldn't win. But I, dig- I digress. Well, and the problem with football in terms of having the better team win, and it is pretty likely, but, uh, because it's a one game, one and done that, you know, one or two bad things can happen to the better team. And because you only get one game in the playoffs in football, you know, they're there. That adds to the luck. Whereas basketball, you get seven games, it's best of seven. And then in each individual game, you're talking, uh, you know, uh, somewhere in the order of 50 to 60 scoring uh, attempts per team. So there's it. it no, closer more than that. Closer. To, I mean, closer. Well, I mean, scores, actual scores. I'm sorry, not scoring attempts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, but but that's even a better number. You get, what, over 100 scoring attempts per team. And so you kind of get into the long run in each individual game in a way that you don't in baseball. Or football. But anyway. And and so anyway, what Paul and I were talking about, how is in a way it, it can make... It makes basketball the most fair of the pro sports because the best team in the league is by far more likely to win the championship than the best team in the other leagues is. Um, But it actually makes it a little bit less exciting, especially to the casual sports fan who's like, oh, I want to watch the playoffs. It's like uh, uh, baseball can be terribly exciting because. You know, a, a, a team with a relatively mediocre record who slipped into the postseason with a wild card has a pretty good chance of beating the best team in, in the in the league. Whereas in basketball, the eight seed is not going to beat the one seed unless there's some kind of injury to a star player. Yep, that's exactly right. I think, and that's why I think with basketball, like it's a four, like Golden State's going to win the title this year. Like everyone's kind of known that from the beginning of the season. So I think there's an aspect of people. If you if if all you care about is just like the outcome, then it's going to be a less fulfilling sport. But if you love basketball, if you I mean, if you, if you love the sport though, you, you, it's like the ride. The ride is the is the journey, right? Right. And you know, there's a, there's an aspect of the NBA in particular because the NBA has been so incredibly uh, there's a lot thing the NBA has done right. Uh, one big thing is like their social media policy. Like, like you can post whatever clips you want of the NBA, like on YouTube or on Twitter mm. or whatever, and they like don't police it at all. It, like, you can go back and watch old games from the '80s on YouTube, and, or and you like you know I just sent you a clip of, yep, of this yep. crazy dunk in this in this, in this Houston Utah game, <laughs> and like unlike the NFL, which is police everything, like you can do whatever you want. And part of the, and part of that is what's come up is there's a huge just especially among young people and in general, and you follow like that House of Highlights channel right the um the like it's all nba clips one because they make great clips and two like there's no restriction on it and so just kind of being a part of the the sort of like particularly among i think younger people just part of the uh, zeitgeist like the nba is so much more a part of it and then the nba too you also have that aspect where the star players are super visible they're not behind a mask that you know they have a big impact on the game and then the you know the off season and player movement and trades becomes almost as big a deal as like what's happening in the season like it's like it, it really is sort of like the the soap opera <laughs> yeah. most soap opera-esque of all the leagues yeah. uh, and and all that stuff and, and Twitter is uh, like Twitter is such an amazing 
experience for the NBA in particular. Like, it, there's a it, like the NBA lives on Twitter. Like Twitter, like they are sort of inseparable. And uh, and yeah, if you're in, sort of into that, it's one of those things where it's easier to get you know deeper and deeper and and in a very sort of enjoyable way in the best sort of in the best sort of way yeah that's true too and now that i'm easing my way back into a little bit more nba fandom you know not just this year uh, but you know in the last few years but like last summer i paid a lot more attention to the off season and i really caught on on twitter as to just how almost uh, like 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 if there was an NBA show about, you know, a, a f- fictional version of the NBA, uh, like the off season episodes would be better than the in season episodes. Like, and I really mean it. No joke in terms of like intrigue and like stuff to like argue about on Twitter, it goes like, all right, postseason is the most interesting, but the off season is more interesting than the regular season. <laughs> it really is. Right. You, and well, it also, cause it involves all the teams too, right. right. And hope springs eternal. And everyone's like, this, right. this might be the year. And, and, and also there's the, I think the other thing that's really interesting too, is going back to that. If you're a certain sort of person, like, because there is that sort of long-term nature to winning a championship, it really does take years. And you have like Sam Hankey and Philadelphia in the process. And we're going to tank you'll be bad for many years and like there's so many opportunities for like genuine disagreement you know what i mean like you can have a philosophical debate about that you have a tactical debate you have a strategic debate you can have a like you know the world is falling apart debate like there's so many angles to just like argue about endlessly like it really like it it really is tailor-made for twitter i mean because what is twitter if not a forum to argue endlessly all right let's uh get into the show uh I got some follow-up from last week's show. I was uh, Jim Dalrymple on. I have two points I want to I want to clarify. One, when we were talking about uh, this uh, new Google Chat RCS thing that they're pushing as sort of a successor to, uh, or not even sort of, it, they're pushing it as a successor to SMS. Um, I think I got lost well, in it, the, it, it. Literally, it literally is a successor to right. SMS. I think that's the thing that people get are kind of gotten got it got lost in the details a little bit. Like it's not a chat service right it is literally but they're calling it chat. <laughs> that, so there's two things that are confusing about it that I, and i think they threw me off one is that it's from google and we're just used to google coming out with and on an annual basis a new all right here's here's our new all, we're not putting a new name on the old yeah. thing we've got an altogether new idea to get people to chat and so we're just i'm used to that and so i attribute way too much of it to google as a possible central centralized uh uh role in this thing and then to the name chat (laughs) right but it really is just like a next generation sms um but the thing that i think i i i would like to uh, whatever uh uh and adjust my statement on is on quote unquote encryption versus end to end encryption End to end encryption is the only encryption that would matter in a messaging service. And if it's not end to end encrypted, it might as well not be encrypted at all. Like some kind of encryption that only takes the first hop from the device to some, you know, wherever it goes before it gets to the destination, but isn't encrypted after that is a, Better than nothing, but barely better than nothing. Really, all that matters is if it's end to end encrypted, because otherwise you're it's and it's not just I think Jim and I got too caught up thinking about like the the protection from like law enforcement and and government snooping and stuff like that. There's all sorts of bad actors that could get involved, including whoever it is that runs your Wi-Fi. If it's not you, if you're like in an airport or a coffee shop or even just, you know, somebody in your family that you don't trust, you know, uh, you know, like if you're the kid in the family and maybe, you've, you know, got like a, 
problem with the stepfather or something like that. You know, if you don't, if you don't have end to end encryption, you really can't trust your communication. Um, so if end to end or bust is, is the point I would like to make. And I think I was kind of mushy on that, uh, last week. Yeah. And the, the other thing, the other thing that I would say, and I, I, cause I didn't talk about it on, uh, I wrote about it last week, but I didn't talk about it on next one. So this is a chance for me to talk about it too, is the point that I was trying to make when I was writing about this is I, I think folks were a little hard on Google in, in that there's a, like, there's a theoretical world and there's like the real world that we actually live in. And, and what I mean by that is all these current end to end in, uh, encrypted chat services, they're all centralized. So, and that right. centralization is critical to how they work because right. it's a centralized player that handles the key exchange. And, you know, we won't get into the vagaries of like how, how encryption works, but basically the person sending you a message has to have your key. And, and in this aspect, there has to be a sort of like communication before the communication and it can't be initiated by the sender. It has to be initiated by the recipient. Like it's very weird, right? I have to give you, perm- I have to give you the means to contact me for you to contact me. But how do I know that you want to contact me if you know like it's in what apple does for example or whatsapp or whatever it might be or signal they all work this way is they have a centralized server where that key is associated with a username or an id like your app id or a phone number and and that centralization is how it works and that's how you know ello worked like google's previous sort of chat offering and the issue is that uh, that is that is ideal, but if the carriers and the OEMs are never ever going to make all of the default messaging service or whatever right. else Google puts out there, there's then no way the they're going to agree on a centralized provider. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah, and people are like, oh, well, what about HTTPS? Well, HTTPS <laughs> depends on right. centralized certificate authorities. Right. Like, it, like there has to be a central player. That's the only way. That's the only way it's going to work. And also HTTPS, you know, that. HTTPS is really only possible because Netscape introduced it in 1994 or whenever it was. Like, it had to be there at the beginning and sort of built in. Yeah. Like, the question is, how are you going to build something into the system as it is? And, and and my point is that it's not theoretically possible to have a decentralized encryption sort of method because HTTPS shows you could. It's that realistically, for all practical purposes, it's never, ever going to happen, which meant, you know, Google was in a very sort of difficult position because their, their choice was – the choice is not – and an end-to-end encryption or not end-to-end encryption, it's stick with SMS as crappy as it is or make it better, but it's just like SMS, it's going to be unencrypted. Right. And you could say that maybe they should stick with SMS and that way customers will will themselves voluntarily go out and use something like WhatsApp and that's better for customers. But I think you could be a little sympathetic to Google's position why they, you know, why they would right. prefer to not have that outcome either. Yeah. Uh, the second point of follow-up from the same discussion with the same show was Jim and I, uh, at my prodding, were speculating on how many active iMessage users there are. Because um, Apple doesn't talk about that, and, and they've rarely, they, they haven't really talked about iMessage numbers, period, in a couple of years. The most recent was actually Eddie Q on this show. <laughs> Like I, two years ago, I think, and he said that they were doing a peak of two hundred thousand messages a section a second. But I think that was from like March twenty sixteen. So, who you know, who knows where that number is at now? And they haven't said anything recently. But I think the problem Jim and I made is is we're ballparking. Well, how many active users of like iPhones are there? And you know, maybe let's guess that half of them are using iMessage or something. Um, 
I think Jim was a little bit more bullish than than me. But I think the thing that both of us sort of overlooked on the fly and and our American central cent- centricism is to to blame is that we I knew this, but I really didn't think of it on the spot is just how different messaging is used country by country around the world. And you know this, you know, we've you've you're the one who opened my eyes to it. Um, but it's it, I think the best word to phrase it is balkanized. You know, it's here in the U.S. SMS is hugely popular, uh, but amongst iPhone to iPhone users, iMessage is iPhone to iPhone, you know, communication is, in my experience, largely iMessage. Um, But there are places in countries in Europe, a lot of countries in Europe, maybe most countries in Europe that are dominated by WhatsApp. And I was talking to people on Twitter about it this week. And and my question is, well, is it in this mixed group of people you're talking about, are there a lot of Android users? And the answer is yes, there's a lot of Android users. So therefore, iMessage really can't be the thing. You know, it wouldn't work like it does for me where almost everybody I chat with is on iMessage. So it's like by being on iMessage and ruling out Android people, uh, I don't I can't remember the last SMS I got that wasn't from like uh some kind of automated service that still uses SMS for, uh, you know, confirmation codes or something like that. But for actual personal communication, I I honestly think I I really do. I I think it's been months since I've gotten an SMS. I I don't, I don't know people who have Android phones. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, but I'm just saying certain countries in Europe, it's WhatsApp. Um, other places, it's Facebook messenger. I know Facebook messenger. It gets a lot of use in the U S too. Um, but not among people I know. And then in, you know, countries like, uh, like, uh, uh, in Asia, there's, there's apps like line and, uh, China has WeChat, right? Am I, uh, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right about the, the balkanization. And, and it, I would say in the vast majority of countries in the world, it is, uh, something other than SMS because the other the one thing that's weird at the U S because the U S uh, was behind in SMS, but then the carriers all bundled. Most people end up getting unlimited talk and text plans. And that's kind of like when SMS really exploded because people, people in the U S weren't paying for it. But in most other countries in the world, people have always paid for SMS messages. Right. And that's why when like WhatsApp came along, like WhatsApp's biggest feature by far was it was that it, it was basically the exact same as SMS but it was free and there is no greater sort of feature when it comes to acquiring customers and and you know that's the challenge with the, all these services is the number one feature of any of these services beyond being free of course is are your friends on it and like and so once one sort of gets a gets a hold it's very very difficult for something else to come along so I think the you know line is you know kind of Japan Thailand uh, Taiwan uh, WeChat is in China uh, South Korea's cacao and basically the rest of the world is all WhatsApp. Like WhatsApp is super, super dominant. And the one big exception is the United States. The United States, because of that sort of weird SMS remains stronger is, is very sort of a fractured. iMessage is obviously a big deal there. And, and I think in the context of Google and this chat uh, slash RCS sort of effort, it's really, I think first and foremost about the, about the North American market. It's yeah. about having a competitive offering to iMessage. Cause right now the Android experience for messaging, is terrible uh, unless you use a third-party service. But using a third-party service is challenging in the states in particular because it's not like everyone already has WhatsApp installed. Um, and, and so that I think that's it's really about the U.S. And, and so in that respect, like your 
your U.S. centric experience is actually really all that matters when it comes to RCS, I think, in general, because yeah. the rest of the world, it's all kind of uh, the, the battle. That battle has been fought. Yeah. It is what it is. And the funny thing, it's funny because you don't really I don't really think about it because it seems like such ancient history where you paid a noticeable amount for SMS. Uh uh, and I'm not quite sure when it. Well, when I came when I when I came to Taiwan, I, I, like I had to pay. Like even though in the U.S. Yeah. I had not paid for a long time. So the, the U.S. is unique here, yeah. the, and that's one of the reasons why the U.S. remains fractured in the messaging market because there's never been that impetus to get away from SMS. I right. mean, like there's no there's no greater motivation to find an alternative to SMS than if you're paying for SMS and you don't have to pay for the other one. <laughs> and it, whereas that's never been the case in the U.S. And it really changes behavior. Like if you only get a hundred SMS messages for month, I mean. Used to be used to see the stories like ten years ago. You'd see stories of people who you know had like a family plan with five hundred text messages a month, and the teenager <laughs> sent like five thousand of them, and they get like a yep. six hundred dollar phone bill or something like that. Uh, like it's yep. a it was a noticeable amount of money, and and it reminds me, you know, and, and and in hindsight, it seems crazy that you know you you would have like just hun- oh, a mere hundreds of text messages to send per month. You know, you get like six a day. <laughs> and then after that, yep. you start paying. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, and when I think back to the days, I just think like, oh my God, it is comical. And I, you know, it, it makes me feel old is, is long distance phone calls. Even like when I was in college, uh, I, I spent a literal fortune, me in Philly and Amy in Pittsburgh. I, I, I spent almost every dollar I had to my name other than like rent and Raymond noodles on long distance phone bills. <laughs> Yeah. And so it, no, it's, it's, so for us who wanted to talk a long time on the phone, it we paid a lot. And then when I was a kid, it would be like if my grandparents called, it would be like, you know, John, come here, say hi. And it'd be like, hi. And I'd start telling a story and they'd like yank the phone and they'd say, nope. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember my dad actually like watching the clock in the kitchen, like because he knew that it was built. It wasn't by the second. It was by the minute. <laughs> So he was damn sure to get off after, you know, before two minutes went by. <laughs> right. One minute and 58 seconds. Right. And it, it like totally informed, like he's over it now. My dad is uh, uh, 80 and, uh, you know, he's gotten past it. But even up I- until like 10 years ago, he would still, if I talked to him on the phone, he'd, he'd be talking fast. <laughs> <laughs> even though we were no longer paying long distance phone bills, he'd still, you know, he just had this sixth sense of this is cost. This is going to cost me a fortune. I'm, this is going to be one minute or less. <laughs> That's funny. God, can you even imagine what you would pay to like talk to your family from Taipei to to Wisconsin if you were there like 25, 30 years ago? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I think you just didn't do it. I mean, when yeah. I when I came, though, it was <laughs> right. still uh, I mean, I came, I first came here 15 years ago and, and we you would go to the 7-Eleven and get a calling card. And and then you get roll up to a payphone and use your calling card because mm-hmm. that was by far the cheapest way cheapest way to call back. Uh, that that came down I think pretty quickly when I was there. I, I discovered within a couple of years that you could actually call just call direct and it would be mm-hmm. reasonable. Uh, but yeah, but obviously now there, it doesn't you know it doesn't really cost it, it's it's totally free. So I've told these both of these stories before, but they're worth retelling. Uh, when I was at Drexel in uh, the early to mid nineties. We had a 7-Eleven on campus. I'm sure it's still there. Um, incredibly busy, incredibly popular, good, perfect location for a 7-Eleven on a college campus. Uh, two or three pay, pay phones out front. And 
somebody's told me the one day, like middle of the school year, that the uh, the the payphone on the right was giving out free long distance. And I said, well, who told you that? And he said, someone, somebody told him. And I was like, what the hell? But I was go, you know, I had to walk by it anyway. And so I picked it up and I got the dial tone and I called Amy's number and she, <laughs> she picked up the phone <laughs> and we're, I was like, holy shit. I just, all I did, it just worked like a regular phone. I just picked it up. There was, it dialed her number and we had like, I had nothing, I wasn't really ready to talk to her, but I told her, you know, <laughs> Hey, this is amazing. Uh, and I literally, the very next day, I swear to God, the next day I walked by and it was like, like the line to buy Pearl Jam tickets. Like, uh, there, there must've been 30 people in line to use that phone and they had chairs, they were at chairs, they had like mugs, you know, like thermoses of coffee. And it was like all of the, um, you know, Drexel, you know, like any school with its strong math and science department had tons of students from all over Asia. Um, uh, you know, it looked, oh, it worked internationally. Oh too. yeah. 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 If it worked anywhere <laughs> in the world. Uh, so it was all of these, uh, you know, it's, you know, like grad students from India and China and, and wherever else they were from, but they were, you know, it was, it looked like the United Nations. Uh, it was crazy. And then like later on that same day, I walked past again and there was nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> it got fixed. It got fixed. <laughs> oh my god, it was so funny. But like words. So, so why, 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 winding up? Why it was preparing you for your future career covering people winding up for the iPhone? Yeah, exactly. All right, let me take a break and thank our first sponsor, and it's our good friends at Trace Pontas. Trace Pontas sells freshly roasted gourmet coffee and it's shipped directly to you their coffee is roasted to order your order and shipped out immediately they don't it's not like they roast coffee and then they go put it on shelves and it stays there for a week or, or multiple week uh and, and then you know your order comes in and they go get one and it's it's fairly recent no man uh, they they when they they, they roast it. And then when they roast it, that's when they start fulfilling the orders for that day. Like the coffee you get will have been roasted, uh, the day it day or the day before it ships out to you and it will ship, you know, beat it in your hands within a day or two. And it has the roast date printed clearly on the bag. So, you know, your coffee is fresh. Well, why does this matter? I'm telling you, it does matter. It makes a difference. Coffee is a grocery. Even roasted coffee is a grocery. It is like, like fruits or vegetables. Um, now it doesn't, you know, the three week old coffee doesn't go rotten like a th three week old banana, but it, it loses, it loses some flavor. It really does. Uh, now Trace Pontas is a single farm coffee, uh, grown on the race family at, at their farm down in Brazil. And for generations, uh, literally this family has been growing coffee down in Brazil for over a hundred years, same family, but they've only been selling their coffee in Brazil until now. And now they're selling it around the world. And the thing, one of the things I love about this is you don't have to pick between like 18 different flavors of coffee or varieties of coffee or something like that. They've got one coffee. They just have this big farm. They grow one type of bean. And what Trace Pontas does is they have different roasts, light roast, medium roast, dark, and the very darkest is French roast. 
So what you can, if you get started, you could just buy one of each. If you already know that you like a light or a medium uh, or French roast, whatever, just get that. Uh, and if you can get it, either a whole bean or pre-ground in 12-ounce packages. Uh, it's really great stuff. I was going to tell you that I'm drinking it right now, but I finished my coffee before I got to this part of the show. It's already gone. Uh, it's, it's really great. Uh, so where do you go to find out more? There's two ways to get Trace Pontas. First, you can go to their website, tracepontas.com slash coffee, T-R-E-S-P-O-N-T-A-S dot com slash coffee. Uh, or you can go to Amazon and buy it there. And when you buy it from Amazon, that's just the front end. It's just an easier way to do the transaction. The actual order is still fulfilled from the Trace Pontas people and the freshly roasted. You get the same freshly roasted coffee that you would if you went right to Trace Pontas. And they don't care which way you buy it, whatever is easiest for you. Here's the deal, though. They've got a subscription if you, if you want to. Uh, you can sign up for a subscription and get fresh roasted beans sent to you every one, two, or four weeks. Uh, it's your choice. And when you sign up for a coffee subscription, you save 10% on every bag of coffee. But listeners of this show get an extra 10% off. You save 20% by using the code the talk show at checkout when you buy a subscription. So it means you get 20% off every bag in your subscription in perpetuity. And hey, I'm telling you, like something like this, if you like, uh, you know, someone in your life, like a wife or your mom or your dad, uh, your husband, uh, Father's Day's coming up. Mother's Day's coming up even sooner. Pretty good gift idea, in my opinion, to set, you know, if you know they like coffee, get them one of these subscriptions, get them a year's worth of subscription. And uh, what a great gift. Then you don't have to, you don't have to worry about the getting a Mother's Day or Father's Day gift. Great idea if you got a coffee lover in either of those roles coming up. So my thanks to Trace Pontas. Remember that code, the talk show, when you go to their website to get a subscription. Uh, we've got lots to cover. It's a good thing we don't waste time. I wanted to talk about this just briefly, at <laughs> least. This uh, it, There's a new book out from Ivan Seidenberg, and I'm obsessed with this. This is one of the things, this is why I love uh, my having my own website, at, and I can just write about what I want to write about, and I don't have to pitch somebody on this, because I imagine if I had to like pitch this as something I'm going to spend a day obsessing over, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about, John? But uh, former Verizon CEO Ivan Seidenberg, has a book coming out. He, he was the CEO, of, I don't know, until like 2011, something like that. So he was there. He was the CEO at Verizon when the iPhone came out in 2006. And he tells this story in his book that he was at the uh, Allen and Company uh, conference. You know, the, you ever see that? Con it's like that conference where Jeff Bezos was pictured looking like a badass with his sunglasses and a vest on. Um, forget where the hell it's held, but Tim Cook goes there now. All these industry big shots go there. And he tells this story in the book that he was, uh, July 2006, he was walking up to Bob Iger, and Bob Iger had some kind of phone in his hand that he didn't recognize, and then he kind of uh, surped, you know, tried to, you know, put it away, and he says, hey, what was that, Bob? And he says, oh, man, it's gonna, it's gonna change the world. Uh, but I guess, you know, can't show it to you. And, uh, that he that uh, Seidenberg thinks it was an iPhone because he, he, Iger, Bob Iger knew Steve Jobs. Um, Steve Jobs is on the board at Disney. They have the whole Disney Pixar relationship. Uh, I think that's crazy. The more I think about it, the crazier I think it is. And I don't know if Seidenberg is 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 being uh, just being a fool. By, you know, and he had that, the, you know, he had, I don't know, like a, a, a ESPN phone or something like that. 
uh, or if he just made the whole story up. But there's no way in my in my mind, there is no fucking way that Steve Jobs is letting anybody outside Apple have an iPhone six months before it was even announced and a full year before it actually came out. No way. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> the, the the iPhone didn't even work at the introduction. That was what made the introduction part of what made it so amazing. Well, you know what? I so it it definitely struggled to get through the demos and and stories I've heard. Yeah, I, know, I, I'm being I'm being a bit hyperbolic. But well, but they had. There's the, no way. There's no way it was usable by anyone not at Apple. Right. But six months before it was even unveiled. It, it, I've heard since I started obsessing on this. I've heard that it's plausible it, it, it or possible it's it's implausible but it's possible and uh you know that it wasn't as bad as you might think and that the press uh demo units in in january 2007 might have been crippled in different ways you know that they like the it, it, i didn't get to see one then i was too far out of the loop but like jason snell and andy and Atko and glenn fleischman all got to see um and I, I think like do a little hands on with with the iPhone in January 2007. And what those guys all said was that there were certain apps like the ones that you would think of more as like widgets, quote unquote, like calculator and the stocks and a, a few others were literally just screenshots. Like you tap the app and it would show a screenshot of the calculator. But you, there was nothing you could do. It was just a screenshot of the right. calculator UI. Um I've heard I heard yesterday from somebody who who would definitely know um, that that's not really a reflection of like what Apple themselves were using in January 2007. They were it was those units were set up that way because they there was just so much the ones that Apple was using had so much other stuff they didn't want people to see. You know, it was almost like there were two kinds of iPhones in January 2007. That makes sense. The ones that Apple themselves were using internally and then a special version of the OS cooked up for the press and probably a third version, which was the ones that were cooked up for the onstage demos, you know. But yeah, it, and that makes sense too because there's no there's no way they could go from like non-functional to right. shipping in 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 five months either. That's so exactly that, that, that's, that's almost exactly word for word what the the little birdie I talked to yesterday said. Um, but still, like he said, Jan- July 2006, he said it was rough. <laughs> but the other thing, too, right. and this just came out today, there's a guy on Twitter. Uh, I've only got his handle here. John Apple 235. Let me see if he's got his real name on Twitter. <laughs> uh, nope. His, Sounds like his real name. I don't think it's his real name. But John Apple uh, noted. I'll put this in the show notes. Um, the, it, it's Scott Forstall's excellent interview at the Computer History Museum last year with um, John Markoff, formerly of the New York Times. And he told some great stories about the development of the iPhone. But he said, like, in the early days, for a long stretch, there were only two people in the world who had iPhones to carry around and use as their daily uh, uh, driver phone. Steve Jobs and Scott Forstall. I'll put a link in the show notes to that part of the video. But he, he tells this funny story where he said, like, he, he'd have his iPhone and, you know, he'd be getting ready to go to bed and get like a, you know, a Friday or Saturday night. And, you know, he'd get a phone call at 11 and he'd be like, Scott, it's Steve. <laughs> and he'd say, I'm at this party. I'm bored. So I went in the bathroom and he goes, I've been looking at the cal- calendar and I'm 
thinking about where where we're putting these labels and forestalled. I, I don't want to go too far into it. It's, he tells it better than I could, but he's like, so I open my calendar app and I start looking and I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah. And this icon, I don't think the shade of blue is right. I think we got to, I think we got to move it in this direction and whatever. And then, you know, he'd be like, we'd talk for like half an hour and he'd be like, oh, damn, somebody's knocking on the door. They probably think I'm constipated. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go. It's not just. Well, another another sort of data point here, too, is uh, there there was a Wall Street Journal story in February 2007, a month after the a month after the announcement about how Apple showed the phone to singular wireless because which was, you know, AT&T was then called singular yes. wireless. And uh, and they the CEOs of singular wireless did not see the iPhone until a month before. Right. So they, they like they had been negotiating the deal and they've been working together for two years. So like, like singular knew it was coming, but they were, they were not allowed to even see the finished device until December right. and, and Apple was announcing it in January. So if Apple's not showing their cell phone partner, the phone, right. like what are the chances <laughs> they're showing Bob Iger? It seems, right. seems uh, quite, quite low. And, even if it's, you know, like, why would you show Bob Iger and why would you trust him to keep it secret when even in the anecdote that claims that this is what happened, he was using it at this conference where he was in eyesight of the Verizon CEO. <laughs> like, right, right. if the story is true, it would the story itself would explain why Jobs would have been an idiot to let Bob Iger have one. Well, not just that, but but Apple, if there actually ever were negotiations between Apple and Verizon, it would have happened before that point because the decision about what right. wireless radio to use would have had to have been made long before that. Right. I mean, especially given that Apple, I mean, Apple, it already takes two years to build an iPhone today. When Apple's building the first one and they have to actually learn how to do cellular transmission for, for the first time, it sure as hell took longer than two years to figure that figure that out. Right. So, you know, if there were if there were ever any sort of negotiation with Verizon, it would have had to have happened before July 2006. Yeah, it's just a weird story and it's very I find it very very hard to believe and I, I think it's bullshit. Um whether he's lying about it or whether he's just being an idiot and that it was like a sidekick, you know, or some one of those phones or something like that, who knows. Uh, but I really I would bet heavily that it was not an iPhone. And I'm going to take Scott Forstall's word <laughs> That there were only two people because the two people who he says had it are the two people who I would believe. <laughs> yeah, that also sounds like a very forced all sort of story to stay to emphasize that it was him and Steve Jobs yeah. that had it. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's very that's a very in character anecdote for for Ooh. Scott Forstall. Right. Uh, uh, I don't have anything more to add about that, though. All right. Next topic I've got here is uh, airport base stations are now end of life and. I, I I actually knew about this last week, uh, the day that Jim and I recorded, but it wasn't out yet and uh, wasn't. So we just didn't talk about it. Um, and it's funny because I think if we if I had talked about it last week, I would have had a slightly different take than I do now that I've had a week to think about it. Um, Interesting. Give us give us both. What, what was the original? Well, take? the original the take, take, I think, is almost best summarized by a. Um, there's a tweet by Dr. Drang. Do you follow Dr. Drang on Twitter? He's like, oh, a, of course. Yeah, One of my boy, that guy's fantastic. So here's his tweet. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, the airport is like the laser writer, something Apple had to make to push computing in a certain direction. Both products hung around well after that push was no longer necessary. And I would say saying that, and that if you don't remember the laser writer, um, 
and when Apple was in the printer business and how revolutionary the laser writer was, uh, it was remarkable. It really was. In 1985, Apple introduced the laser writer and fundamentally altered the nature of printed business communications. In 1986, the Laser Writer Plus was introduced, bringing even greater flexibility to the printed page. With the Laser Writer and the Laser Writer Plus, Apple has today become the leader in the desktop laser printer market. However, new opportunities are developing in the areas of higher throughput, lower cost, and greater flexibility. As application areas grow, so does the demand for more sophisticated laser writers. To meet this need, Apple has created the Laser Writer 2 family of printers, the second generation of laser writers. The Laser Writer 2 NTX, a high performance expandable network laser printer. The Laser Writer 2 NT, the mainstream network laser printer. And the LaserWriter 2SC, an entry-level single-user laser printer. NTX for networkable and expandable. NT for networkable. SC for SCSI interface. It was like, the first thing was that most printers back then were like dot matrix printers and they were loud and noisy and so low resolution as to be almost laughable. I mean, you actually get better resolution output out of like a, a cash register <laughs> with the, the heat transfer and you could, you know, like, yeah, you can still see the pixels on those things even today. It was like, you could see, yep. not only could you see the pixels, they weren't really even aligned right. Um, and then you, all of a sudden you have this $300, 300 DPI laser printer where everything it's a, it's a lot more than three hundred dollars. Not three hundred DPI. I said. I <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just. I was just yeah, laughing. It was a lot more. Than, and also, you know, setting up the idea of a of a printer on a network. And if you were going to spend as much as a laser writer cost in the, the mid eighties, uh, so just, just to drop it in, it, it launched in nineteen eighty five. It was uh, six thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars, right. which is the equivalent of fifteen thousand nine hundred sixteen dollars today. So it, it was it was the price of a small car, basically. Right. So if yeah, imagine spending fifteen thousand dollars on a on a printer today um but in like certain environments like uh you know uh, some kind of like a shared computer lab at a college or uh you know an office or especially uh if you worked in the graphic design industry uh it was worth it it was almost a no-brainer but you'd need to you know you wouldn't want to have it hooked up to one computer like you know like imagine if uh Ben was the guy who had the laser writer. Hey, Ben, I need, I need you to print something for me. Hey, Ben, print this again. Ah, oh, shit, I had a typo, Ben. Give me another copy. Uh, you know, it had to be networked. And setting up a network printer in 1985 or 1986 was like, forget about it. And then Apple, you know, came up with local talk and it relatively inexpensive and normal. You didn't need any kind of IT pros or computer experts. It was every, like everything that the Macintosh exemplified. You'd buy these things, you'd hook them up into the serial port on the back of your Macs and you'd go to the chooser and there as an output was the laser writer and you'd click on the icon and then every time you hit command P in any app, it would show up as the output and you'd hit the print button and you would get this unbelievable 300 DPI output. 
Um, and it, this was mind blowing. Like it's hard to convey how utterly and completely mind blowing that this was at the time. It, it, and by, I am I am I'm projecting because I was five years old. But by all accounts, I should say it was mind blowing. Well, I didn't. I didn't see. I don't know when I first saw a laser writer. I, it certainly wasn't 1985. Um, I, I don't remember. I might have. It, it's interesting though because it wasn't. You, it was an integral piece. I think the ATP guys were talking about like the the, the various heydays of Apple. And uh, one of the ones that that's you know naturally the Syracuse had picked four instead of picking one, uh, but one of the ones he picked out was the that sort of the 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 birth of desktop publishing and when that became a real thing. And the Laser Writer was a critical piece of that. It, it was a really great example of Apple sort of giving birth to an industry by virtue of creating sort of a critical piece of hardware that 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 made that industry possible. And the GUI and the Mac was a big part of it. But the fact you could instantly print it out and see what it looks like and make sure. It's, was right was was a, was a major part of it as well and and apple had to make it themselves yeah and it was um even into the 90s even into my time at the uh, drexel's student newspaper the uh, my beloved triangle um we would put the output together for the entire it was like a tabloid sized newspaper and every page was put together from our laser writer output actually we had an hp by that time by the 90s but we'd laser print the pages put them together and then we'd have them on um i forget what we i forget the hell we called it i can't believe i've forgotten but it was like this sticky stuff that we'd put them on to put them on cardboard you know so it would be uh you know we printed on nice paper just regular paper though and then you'd uh we had this like spray stuff you had to do it in a special room because (laughs) it was such a mess but it was like we had this room that was sort of like instead of feeling like it was like a newspaper office it was like an art room because it had that smell of like aerosol sticky stuff yep um and you'd, you know, be very careful and nicely, neatly press it. And then, you know, the last thing we do before we'd close for the week is, you know, like the editor in chief and the managing editor would sit there and look, read, read every page from corner to corner again, you know, make sure everything's right. And then a guy from the printer would come and pick up those boards. Like, so that's our, deli- our delivery wasn't like a disc. It wasn't like a zip disc or a PDF or anything like that. It was laser printed output. And then they would just take it and it was photo ready. They, you know, I don't know what the hell they did, but you know, a couple hours later, we'd have thousands of copies of an actual newspaper. Um, but the fact that we ourselves, I, I like, and I, I remember asking, I remember at one point, like asking like, what the hell did they do before this? And then like, you know, I kind of found out and I was like, I don't think I would have been in the newspaper <laughs> before the laser writer. Like that was too much work. It was ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I, I my I did the student paper thing too, and and we that we still had that room where that was done, but it had since been you know it had been retired. We yeah. we were at that point we were laying out in Quark. Well, we'd uh, use Quark, and, but I mean then, the output was paper. You know, we printed the pages. No, but 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 we we would put it out to PDF, and then right. we could submit it uh, uh, over the internet to the printer. Yeah. Uh, so, but but that that it was like it was still fresh enough to that era where that room was still there, and the markup table or cutup yeah. table, or whatever it's called, was still in there. But it, but it, you know we, we, we were no longer using. We, it, so. we, well, I know what you're talking about, but I never actually I never actually cut up a paper. Most of the ads we got we got as paper. We'd get ads and they were paper, and you know we we would scan them. Like it wasn't like we were you know we'd cut them out and paste them on the thing. We'd scan them at high resolution, so we'd you know that we we could have the whole everything was in Quark. Um, 
but still that's how people delivered stuff to us because it wasn't, it was a wild, I mean, PDF, I, you know, sort of like in the time when PDF was starting to take off. Um, but there just was no reliable interchange and, you know, you'd send somebody an EPS file and God help them if they didn't have the right font, you know, it was just too hard. Yep. Oh yeah. Oh, we know we, we, we were still very much in the, uh, font, font headache days for oh, sure. Oh my God. It's like, what version of Futura do you have? I have Futura yeah, STD. Exactly. Oh, STD. Yep. <laughs> Nobody's using that anymore. <laughs> oh, that one spread like crazy. Oh. <laughs> I thought I was trying to think of a joke. I did. There was a, there was a version of Futura called Futura. That was Futura STD. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that was my take on airport uh, a week ago where it's like, well, I kind of miss it. And in the way that I still kind of wish Apple made printers, really, uh, just because I think they'd be better than the ones that, you you know, it's, I think they would still be the best. Um, but I get it. And, you know, like I don't need my house is, has been wired up with Eros, you know, for, for at least two years now. Um, and their heart wasn't in it. And, you know, uh you know, uh, German reported back in November 2016 that they were no longer developing them. And so it's from then until now when they officially pulled the plug. But now that I think about it after a week and talking to seeing a couple of other people's things, I think I agree with the Drang take insofar as why Apple created airport in the first place, because in 1999 or 98, whenever that was, remember when Schiller jumped off the <laughs> in the demo? There was like a onstage demo where Phil Schiller jumped off like a ten foot. Oh right, so he'd be yeah, so he'd be disconnected. Yeah, so it was disconnected. To, yeah, yeah, and to prove that it wasn't that it wasn't connected to anything. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember having to decide whether you wanted to add an airport card or not to to your, right. your laptop. Right, you had to add a card. But Apple made something that you know they they foresaw that wireless, you know, Ethernet, you know, Ethernet speeds over wireless, you know, was that's the future. Uh, you know, they're still pushing towards a lot of, you know, getting a little, you know, still pushing towards wireless technologies today, but they saw that, you know, wireless networking was the way of the future. Networking has always been hard to set up. Um, and so if they did it all themselves, they could make it easy and they could, you know, make their own nice app for managing the base station, et cetera, and so forth. And that's not necessary anymore. But I think the difference with laser printers and airport today is, okay, there's other ways to easily set up a network today. And, you know, like Eros and other brands, um, you don't have to go through. Or, and frankly, for most people, it's it's the one that their cable provider gives them. Yeah. Well, which, which are still crap, but they're it's they're less crappy than they used to be. And, you know, if you don't think too much about it, it seems like it's it's sufficient. Yeah. Well, but the, I, I think the main reason that Apple I wish Apple were still doing it is security and privacy that I still I trust Apple more, and I certainly trust him more than the shit boxes you get from cable companies. Um, and if you look, if you, you know, there's tons of, if you just start searching for, uh, security problems with like consumer grade Wi-Fi routers, they're all over the place. I mean, it's, it's really, really common. Um, and I, I just think that with the renewed focus or, or not renewed, but the sort of the, just the way that the whole industry has gotten focused on security and privacy and encryption, et cetera, over the last 10 years, I feel like, uh, you know, not, not that I, th you know, that it, it would take a renewed, what I'm th talking about would take Apple to actually be interested and in actively, you know, uh, making airport 
radically new and better than ever before. But uh, I think they had a role to play there and they sort of abdicated it. Maybe. I mean, but I mean, honestly, what is your if your ISP is is problematic and tamping with your communications that like they can do that just as easily, you know, internally as opposed to using your modem? I mean, I'm not sure or your router, I should say. I'm not sure how much of a difference that would make. And I guess I don't find that super compelling. What what I do find compelling and uh, was uh, did you see that piece by M.G. Siegler? Uh, yeah, I think he called it error ports or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but but, you know, he, his argument is that Apple should have moved to integrate sort of the router and your capability with the Apple TV and with, you know, sort of uh, the HomePod or and yeah. with, you know, a Siri sort of center in the yeah. house. And I think that is uh, I think that's where it, it, this is much more compelling. And I think is a very strong argument yeah. to make. I mean, you can understand why Apple want to get out of it, not just because solutions were good enough, but it actually does make it slightly more challenging to set it up uh, initially because you know, when the technician comes in and installs your internet, they have the expectation because 95% of their customers just use whatever they give them that they set it up and it's good to go. And when you, if you want to add on a router, often you have to do like PPPoE or you have to do some sort of like configuration or if you set it up as a bridge mode, like there is, there are challenge. I think Apple might've been getting more. I bet part of the calculation was the amount of customer support they were having to do with people just trying to get these things set up with, with sort of like a Wi-Fi network that, that was already being set up for them. And that probably, went into it but the payoff the payoff of overcoming that complexity is you have a very sort of privileged position it's it's like the the, the laser writer being compelling because it had networking built in right because hp actually came out with the laser printer first but right. it didn't have networking right and the networking is what is what made the the uh you know the laser writer so, such a so so incredible as you just kind of just explained and to have the same sort of thing when it comes to you know home automation when it comes to uh tv when it comes to music and, and streaming and all that sort of stuff, I think would be a very compelling place to be going forward. And, and so my take, I think, would be much more along the one that MG had, where it, they're just kind of just kind of gave up on on on, yeah. on a great place to be and accepted being just another device uh, in the network yeah. instead of sort of the device. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I, I'm glad you. I, put, I just added, or you added MG's thing to the show notes. Uh, so it'll be there. I completely agree. And, you know, a good example of that, where, where they started going down that path was with time capsule, where it was more than just a router. It was also a destination where your max, all your Macs in your house could, could use for time machine. Um, cause time machine is a great feature, but it, it needs, it, it can't use you know, for good reason, it can't use your startup drive as the place where it stores your backup information because that's what it's backing up. Um, and, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, an awful lot of people <laughs> have, uh, uh, MacBooks. not, they don't use desktop Macs. And so it's not really all that convenient to, you uh, have like a USB drive plugged into the side everywhere you go at all times so that time machine can run. So having time machine be able to back up to a network device like time capsule is a brilliant device for most Mac users because most Mac users are on MacBooks, and even the ones who aren't, you know, having one device that everybody in the house can back up to is better than buying multi, you know, a USB drive for everybody. So that's just, and you know, now what are you supposed to do for time capsule? If you're, if you're one of these people, 
And that time capsule is well, a just great that, feature. Well, the other thing is, you know, the, the, the trend in general has been towards these sort of mesh networks. Like you mentioned you have right. you have a, a Euro. Um, I have one of those hardcore sort of ubiquity systems uh, like, like, like Marco has. But, um, but, the, uh, but, but the, what's so interesting is if, if Apple had been more sort of forward thinking about this, you know, they could have used a mesh network yep. and integrated that with a Siri type device like the, like the Amazon Echo Dots, the small ones. Yep. And imagine if those were both like like a part of a Wi-Fi mesh network and also were sort of embedding Siri throughout the house. I mean, this, you know, this idea of like, like there was a real opportunity for sort of integrating all these sorts of different services, which is sort of Apple's bread and butter. And there was just I think it, I think it really was just a lack of vision. I mean, I've written about the thing with, you know, about the HomePod and Siri and, and or the HomePod in general. I mean, the remember the the Echo came out, I think it was in 2014. And um, I'm very proud of it because that was it came out on the heels of the Fire Phone, which was, you know, just uh, truly, it's, it's honestly the worst phone I've ever used in my life. It, 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 was, it was truly horrendous. Uh, and, and so they come out with this Echo device, and everyone's like, oh, you know, the Amazon, what are they doing? They're terrible, hardware, blah, blah, blah. What people didn't realize is the Echo was not a hardware device. It was a conduit to its online service, which Amazon is much better at than, right. than they are, sort of like a, a product that you hold in your hand. But, uh, it, I, and I was very, because I was the only person I knew that first day, I was like, I think this is pretty compelling. It's going to be a big thing. And I think the problem for Apple and Google both was they were so dominant in smartphones that they couldn't imagine a world where the smartphone wasn't the most sort of important dominant device because why wouldn't it be? It's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. It's always with you. And it turns out, I've, I've probably said this in the show before because I've made this point previously, but the one place where you're most likely to not have your phone happens to be when you're at home because you're yeah. charging it, yeah. right? <laughs> true. And and. and and but Apple and Google, I think, were just so blind to it that Amazon got this multi-year head start building this stuff out. And if you think about the timing, Apple stopped development in two, like when the current, the last version of the uh, of the airport came out, it had to have been around 2014 or so, sometime around that. I, I, I'm just I'm just guessing. But you know, if they had sort of not had this blind spot, you know, you could imagine a world where they have all these Euro-like devices distributed through your house that have Siri all enabled, and it's just a, it's just sort of embedded in your house and it's combined with Apple TV and has this whole sort of like where, where, where the, the iPhone you're less dependent on this device in your pocket and you're more sort of living in this sort of Apple controlled sort of universe and, but, but they didn't they had that blind spot and now and now they're they're basically in many respects when it comes to the home back where they started yeah and it's think about how long ago that was that they had original you know they, they, they started shipping machines with Wi-Fi in 1999 so it, you know we're talking like 18 years I think that's when the first airport came out right um, I am looking it up right now it's close it's got to be close to around 18 years like that's eight yeah they watched it in 19 they watched it in 1999 and then the last version uh, came out in uh, well 2011 yeah. sheesh I, it is I think ultimately it's just uh, that's a and it, it is sort of what I'm thinking it, it's not just security and privacy but it's just all of there's just a lost opportunity you know uh, to have 18 years of it and that it really only got better in that 18 years by adopting you know ever faster Wi-Fi standards and time capsule time capsule is the only thing they ever did along the lines of hey if we've already got a device plugged in and networked and connected to the internet by definition right that that's the fundamental role that this thing plays um 
And, you know, and they before mesh networks, they had the Airport Express, which was right, which which is kind of accomplished sort of the same thing. Like right. and, and because their app, if you actually want to have multiple Wi-Fi devices in a house and you, you didn't know what you were doing, the only feasible way to do it was with was with uh, multiple Apple Airport Expresses, right. because at least Apple had the app that made it somewhat approachable right. uh, for for a sort of regular person to set up. I, and I guess I shouldn't say that time capsule is the only time they extended it because the Airport Express Express is a good example, too, where they had audio out from it and you could use that to, uh, you know, connect like a, a non-networked audio, you know, like your stereo system to get, you know, to make it a, a destination for playing music from your Mac. Um, yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, speaking of Paul Kafasis, I mean, like Rogue Amoeba, uh, you know, made some amazing things that took advantage of that, you know, you know, in terms of audio. Um, but that's another, you know, so like in the early years, they were thinking of, hey, you know, it, it, we've got these things. What else could we do with it? And it's like, you know, I'm sure that the way Airport Express came about was they were thinking, well, look, one base station, there's God, there's just no way in certain houses that we can make a signal strong enough to fill the whole house with Wi-Fi. What could we do? And they thought, well, what if we sold? All right, we still sell a main base station, but we sell a cheaper, smaller thing that you could put another one like upstairs and it'll set up a secondary network that the same devices will automatically connect to, um, you know, it, it's not a mesh network, but still sort of solving the same problem. And mesh networks is like a, a, you know, years later, a better idea of do it. But if they had kept pressing forward, they should have gotten to mesh networks first. And they could have yep. kept thinking of more and more ideas. Because um, ultimately, the difference is in the early years, in the 2000s, they couldn't make the, you know, these devices were more like traditional consumer electronic devices, whereas all the stuff they've been doing in the last five, six years are making little devices that are actually iOS computers, right? Your your AirPods are literally tiny little iOS computers <laughs> running running a, a, a system on a chip inside your ear. Uh, Apple TV is an iOS computer. Uh, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm missing a couple. Everything, almost everything they make now, uh, HomePod is an iOS computer. Um, what else could they do if they could make the router into a little iOS computer? Well, obviously, you know, the, like you said, you know, the... the uh, Amazon Echo and Echo Dots and stuff like that show you, you know, the direction you could go. It just, I don't know. It just seems like a missed opportunity. And I think you're very, very astute at that they got blinded by the fact of, uh, you know, that the, that the phone is your, what do you, you know, your everywhere computer. Uh, I, uh, sorry if you heard a vacuum in the background. I just stepped away <laughs> there to, to stop that. But uh, I, sorry, I missed your last like. Well, I just minutes. said I just said that I, I think you're exactly right. I, the last I heard was you were talking about everything was an iOS computer, yeah. and you. Were well, I was just listing some examples of it, and everything you know that everything. Uh, uh, but I think you're ultimately you know that they should have been thinking of that, and if they had been on top of it, you know, once they started making everything into iOS computers. Boy, something like, you know, making, you know, echoes and echo dots type devices would have been obvious if they hadn't been like, I think, and I think you're spot on blinded by the fact that they saw the iPhone as the computer that you would have everywhere. 
Yeah, and it's, it's a perfect example that you see in company after company after company after company where you, you it just almost it's impossible to not get blinded by your success. Right. And to and to and you see this again and again, like Microsoft could not imagine a world that did not have the PC at the center. Right. Right. You know, it, it, and it's the same sort of thing. Like and, you know, they could have still created a world where the iPhone was the most dominant piece in the center. What's interesting is Steve Jobs, you know, if you remember his last keynote was about iCloud being the new center of yeah. your life. But the reality is, is that never actually happened. Like the, the truth is the, the iPhone has become ever more the sort of, for practical purposes, the center of your life. And it's the center of your life in terms of the way Apple thinks about their business, where, you know, they're going to get you to buy a more expensive iPhone. They're going to get you to do more things on the iPhone, earn more from services. They're going to sell you AirPods. They're going to sell you a watch, all of which sync with the iPhone. And, and I don't, on one hand, like I fault them because they got this wrong. On the other hand, it's sort of like, well, that's the way, that's the way it works. Like even Apple as, as well run as they have traditionally been are not sort of immune to the mistakes that befall every single successful company. So uh, I think this is, and this is an example of that. Let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor. Uh, it's our good friends at RX bar. RX bar makes, uh, little food bars, uh, and 11 delicious flavor varieties. Uh, they're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, very important in the Gruber household. No added sugar. So it's not like they're candy bars and they're just calling them breakfast bars or, you know, energy bars or something like that. Cause a lot of, if you ever look at the ingredients on a lot of these bars and I'm not opposed to a candy bar personally, uh, I'm just saying though, if you're really kind of passing it off as a quick breakfast on the go, you know, Take a look at the ingredients. Well, they don't add any sugar. They don't add artificial colors, preservatives, fillers. It's real food. Um, their core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply, it's like eating three egg whites, two dates, six almonds with no BS. Uh, real food ingredients actually taste really good. I like the taste of these things. It really is good. And you can actually taste the ingredients, like the ones that have fruit. You can taste the fruit. Uh, the ones that have spices like sea salt. I actually like, I, I do like the, the ones with salt. I think like, a, uh, I just always like salty food, but you can taste it. Um, so whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. And they really are convenient. You just, you know, it's eating a bar. You open the thing up, you eat it. Um, I think I said this the last time that they sponsored the show. I, I One thing I'd gone through my whole life and hadn't really known, I, I don't think I ever ate before. And I think I got turned off because of Raiders of the Lost Ark are uh, dates. <laughs> I don't, you remember the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the, mon the monkey eats the date? Well, uh, I got turned off on it, but it turns out dates are delicious. Uh, and that's what they use to bind these things together. They've got nuts for texture, dates to bind them, egg whites, real egg whites for protein. Um, and they're just fantastic for a number of occasions. Uh, breakfast on the go, snack at the office, keep one in your bag for the plane. Uh, you know, seriously, eat something like this on the plane instead of eating the garbage food that they, they, they sell you on the plane. Um, some kind of energy, you know, like if you're going on a long bike ride or hike or something like that, it's so super convenient. And these RX bars, they really do taste good. Um, it, it, they taste good. Um, uh, they're healthy. They have all the real ingredients like protein stuff like that. Um, so here's what you do if you want to get in, involved with these RX bars. And I, I, I recommend them. I really do. They're good. They're so easy. They're so, they really are convenient and there's, they taste good. Uh, so here's what you do. And it's a special offer for listeners of our show. You get 25% off your first order 
We're using this. Go to rxbar.com slash talk show. No the, just talk show. And then when you check out, enter uh, code talk show at checkout. That's rxbar slash talk show with the code talk show. Um, and I'll just tell you this personally. Uh, I can't say I tried all 11 flavors because there's some that I really thought, I don't think I like that. Every single one that I tried uh, tastes about what I thought it would taste like. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's so if you look at the ingredients, if you just go to the website. Uh, hey, when it, comes to, when it comes to energy bars, that's all you can ask. <laughs> uh, so my thanks to RX Bar for sponsoring the show. All right. You still there, Ben? I'm here. I am here. <laughs> I, I, I successfully took the dog to the restroom while you were reading the ad. So. <laughs> you're you're uh, multitasking. I am multitasking. Uh, Apple's quarterly results. I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, we have to talk about this uh, <laughs> Samsung OLED thing. There was a lot of pessimism about Apple's the iPhone 10 results or iPhone 10 sales, and it, it's... I think it's a couple of factors. I think one of them is that every, I think it's every year in this quarter, I think, because the, 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 the holiday quarter, the one that ends in December is all about the new phones and the new phones are so much excitement, blah, blah, blah. And then the March quarter, January, February, March, I think on an annual basis, there's a, there's just, you can just set your clock to it next year, starting around January, February, there's going to be reports that the new iPhones from September, 2019, uh, especially the flashiest ones are a disappointment. Sales are down. Suppliers uh, of certain things are saying that Apple has slashed uh, their, their estimated orders. No, there's, there's a good reason for that though. And that was because uh, two years ago, the second quarter of 2016 is where the bottom fell out of the iPhone success. And, and like that in a, in a real meaningful way, not only were sales down 16% year over year, which was the first time iPhone sales, I think had been down ever year over year, but also it, it was actually far worse than it appeared because Apple built up a huge amount of inventory to the point they had to take down a 2 billion write down later that year. So like quarter to 2016 was a complete disaster mm. for Apple, for its suppliers, for its, um, you know, for everyone who held the stock at that time. So I think th- like it's only been one year or two years since then. So I, I think there was more going on than just like th- there's a reason for this quarter to uh, to be a little nerve wracking again. And the other thing was in the last quarter, there was some inventory questions again, which made which kind of like gave some hints that is there is there going to be a similar sort of thing to to 2016. So I think it's it's a little more justified than sort of just a a, a usual, you know, Apple Apple's doom sort of narrative sort of thing. Hmm. All right. I, fair enough. Um, uh, and I even I published a piece a week or so ago saying maybe there is something to this linking to a Bloomberg report on Samsung's result where Samsung said, Hey, you know, we're seeing slot significantly less, uh, uh, business in our flexible OLED displays than, than we expected. 
and that's is, is this where is this where I, is this where I throw myself <laughs> throw myself on the sword? Well, I was, uh, it was because you, you <laughs> it was pro- no, I will do it I will do it it was pro- I will do it it was you had po- you had posted a post that saying that someone was a jackass was saying that iPhone X sales were down, right. and I said I don't know I think I'm a little worried about the iPhone X, and then uh, and then a few hours later that article dropped, right. and I I forwarded I'm the one that forwarded you that article <laughs> and said uh, yes look at look at here, and then you posted, and then I, and then I woke up the day after earnings, and I and I sent you an apology right. message. And now, so there's the story. I did. It's not like, well, you sent me the link and you send me a link and then I go post it to Daring Fireball. But you sent me the link and you had said, I don't know. I think there's something to it. And I trust your opinion. And I had seen this story before and I just didn't link to it. I was like, ah. and you made me look at it again. And I read it and I thought, hmm. And what I my regret isn't that I linked to it. My regret is that is the exact language I used and I, I'm not going to go back and edit it because I think it would be, you know, it's disingenuous, but I'll tell you what I wish I had written. What I wrote was, let's see here under the headline, Samsung scenes sees slow demand for OLEDs used for Apple's iPhone 10. Well, I regret that headline. I, I should have just said they see slow demand for flexible OLEDs. Um, because that used for Apple's iPhone 10 makes it sound like they're only used for the iPhone 10 and they're not, even though they're very expensive displays and therefore aren't used for most phones. Um, but my first sentence after quoting from the Bloomberg article was starting to sound like iPhone 10 sales really are falling short of expectations. And I wish instead of the verb are, I had said might be, because that's really what I was thinking. And I think it would have <laughs> held up better a week later. And, and so here's the thing, though. So here's the thing. I mean, so one, the I think it's a little more complicated, though, than uh, Bloomberg got it wrong and and everyone else got it right. Because I actually the truth is actually, I think, in the middle, because I think what happened was uh, Bloomberg and, and really kind of ran with this. Like, it's going to be a big problem, blah, blah, blah. And, and then you had all the sort of spillover articles saying it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful, blah, blah. And then it comes out and it's fine. It's the it's the best selling phone every week. And I was like, ah, yeah, you were wrong. But that also is not totally right either. Like, like it, it, there was a you know, there was a drop off like last year, the the average selling price, it always drops after the first quarter because the first quarter is when all the enthusiasts buy the phone. They right. always buy the best possible phone they can. And, and last year, the drop off was six percent. And that's pretty normal. The year before it was seven percent. The year before it was four percent. Right. So like that, that's a kind of a, it's normal for average selling price to go down. This last quarter went down nine percent, right. which, which means there was for sure. There was for sure is a, a more of a drop off from the high end than there has been in previous quarters. Right. Now, was it a disaster? Of course not. It wasn't right. close to being a disaster. But but it was, you know, and there's this quote that Cook had where he's like, yeah, maybe you'd like to win the Super Bowl by more points, but you still in the Super Bowl. It's a great phone. Like that, that sure sounds like right. Tim Cook saying, well, we thought we could have done more, but we still did pretty, pretty good, which means it, it, which, which means your quote was right. It, it right. was short of expectations, no, I don't but know it was not about expectations. I think maybe short of hopes. Right. Like realistic hopes. You know, what I mean, I think it was exactly within expectations and in the other sign. And I think you're right that that the drop off quarter to quarter, in other words, going from the first two months, because it wasn't on sale for the whole quarter in uh, uh the holiday quarter, right? It, the iPhone 10 was right. But, you know, but all, all, all we can look at is the whole quarter though. That's, that's the, that's right. the but most I, information. But I actually think that's kind of interesting because it was only available for two months in that quarter. 
And it, it's so clear that so many of the people who wanted to get an iPhone 10 right away bought it right away, that even though it was only available for two months in that quarter, it still was a bigger drop off quarter to quarter, you know, from from uh, the December quarter to the March quarter than the than like you said, than the last two or three years. It was still you know, a it's really weird because. It, it, the other thing that's weird is they were in supply demand balance or something or close to it by the end of the quarter. And that was also that was the other big warning sign for the iPhone 10 is usually when Apple launches a new phone, uh, the, the most successful ones by the end of the quarter, they're still not in what they call right. supply demand balance, where, where, where the, the, like they're selling more than they can make. Right. And the problem was the iPhone 10 within literally like five weeks was already in balance. So there was a lot. So even last quarter, and I think I wrote this after last quarter, like I, I was very worried about this current quarter because wow if they're already in supply demand balance and, and like how many how much more demand is there for the device so i will say from my perspective it did better than i expected because i was worried about that specific point right. from last quarter uh but that said uh you know it, it's still there was still a it's not I, you can't say it was uh there, there was a drop off it just you know it was so oversold and overhyped right. uh you know by i think bloomberg in particular but it's had a profound effect on on the average selling price of iPhones because even with that drop off from the last quarter if you look at the year over year january february march of last year and january february march this year the average selling price went to i'm i don't have notes i'm doing this from my memory yesterday but i think it went from 659 average selling price to 729 uh or something uh that is that is pretty good it went from 656 to 729 all right uh so an 11 11 percent increase which is yeah which is which is huge i mean that last year the in, the year over year increase was was two percent right for a 10, so, a 10 year old product sorry. for a 10 year old product to all of a sudden have an average selling price increase you know in an industry where as is you know three or four years ago everybody thought that the average selling price for everything iphone included was going to sink you know that it was going to uh and who knows it still may happen eventually i mean it, you know in long enough run it's probably going to happen you know but uh you know uh, the way that the pcs oh pcs constantly got cheaper like the average selling price of pcs didn't go up 10 years into the pc revolution <laughs> like pcs used to cost like you know six seven thousand dollars and they you know now they cost like Two hundred dollars. Um, no, you're you're hitting the exact right point. Like no matter, it's so easy to stuck in the weeds of like where is it relatively speaking. If you just step back for a moment, the iPhone 10 is an unbelievable triumph. I mean, from a financial and business perspective. Right. I mean, we are ten years into smartphones, eleven years into smartphones, and Apple. And I, I kind of wrote about this week. Like when I first started Techery, it was 2013 when the five. I got a wrote about the iPhone 5C so much because right. it was such. It was this huge deal. Apple has to. Is cheaper iPhone. Is yep. cheaper iPhone. Here we are five years later, and Apple has jacked up the price of the highest end iPhone right. by what thirty three percent, and they're selling gobs of them. And yes, we can quibble about the relative amount of those gobs, but the fact remains that they are absolutely defying gravity in a way that that if you didn't really think about how Apple works and why they could accomplish that would seem totally preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Was, I, I noted that in your uh, daily update today that that was a great callback to the 5C, which was just a couple of years ago. But yes, the 5C was seen as a, a big WTF by the industry because, it, you know, the rumors had linked that they're making a phone. It'll be plastic instead of metal. And everybody 
quote unquote, everybody uh, assumed that Apple had to make a quote cheap iPhone. So obviously the plastic one would be the cheap one. And so it's going to have some kind of, you know, the most exciting thing about it is going to be this exciting low price point. And it came out at exactly, like you point out, exactly the price that it, they would have had if they had just kept the original iPhone 5 around for another year. <laughs> Okay. Which would Alberti say was really hard to manufacture yeah. and very high return rates, and yeah. there was a very good reason to retire it, right? And had you know had uh, uh, anodization problems that customers weren't happy with. You know the black, uh, you know if you recall, the iPhone five had a black variant and the and the, those chamfered edges, and the iPhone five S uh, went to space gray, I think, and it was a much lighter dark darkening to the aluminum. Uh, wasn't really that dark at no, all. No, it was. It, yeah, it was true. No, the, 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 in the five, I, I, I believe I had a black one. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was amazing when you bought it and it looked like absolute garbage with it. But I kind of like that. You would get that chipping and yeah, stuff on it. I yeah, like. No, it. I agree. I agree. I, I don't put like I, I like the sort of like beaten weathered right. look, so right. I don't mind it. But uh, some, I, I know that <laughs> some people, people don't, don't though, especially with their seven hundred dollar iPhones that they're hoping to resell eventually. So, yes, there were problems with it. But anyway, it's a good it's it's such a good like, it, you know, from there to here difference where everybody was, you know, expected Apple to make a cheap phone and they didn't. And they thought it was a mistake. And. <laughs> now they've made a more expensive phone than ever. And it's, you know, it's maybe not the biggest hit it possibly could have been, but it's clearly selling well enough that it has significantly altered the average selling price of an iPhone. Right. And, and I mean, Apple, to be fair, Apple did raise the price of the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. Com so it would have compared, to, compared to the 7 and 7 Plus when they were brand new a year ago. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, uh, so, but, but that kind of makes the point even further, right? right? They're also raising their their second tier phone prices, and it and it's not it doesn't really matter. I mean, right. and, and the other thing is, you know, yes, unit sales have flattened, and people are right to point that out. But you know, I think there's a there's a difference, and this is something that people just have have, you know, there's a difference between saying Apple has saturated, and this is why the phone market's so great, Apple, I think it's fair to say Apple has largely saturated the sort of the high-end phone market. And to the extent they pick up new users, they, they are, they have always picked up switchers because people are far, like Apple customers almost always buy, iPhone customers almost always buy new iPhones, whereas the average Android purchaser, their likelihood of buying the same phone is, is significantly lower. So if right. you just work out the math, by definition, Apple's going to be picking up switchers over time. But that's counterbalanced by the fact people do hold onto their phones longer than they used to. Right. But at, at the end of the day, phones wear out. They, they break, they get old, they, people, there are personal accessories that people carry with them. They want to have the hot new thing. And, and so that makes it such a great market to be in because sure, there, there may be a limit to how large Apple can grow as far as their base. And they may be close to it, but they're not losing anyone. And, and this is the, you know, this is the, when I first started Chatechery and, you know, very much into, things like disruption and, and sort of business theory and stuff like that. And, and you know, I, I was so sure that there, there was something wrong there because you remember there was all the predictions. Apple is going to be disrupted and the low price competitor is going to come along. And, and, you know, that was one of the reasons I wanted to start Shekery is, you know, obviously you and, and other folks were writing that this makes no sense. But, you know, for me, coming from the sort of business theoretical perspective, I wanted to put sort of like the theory around why yep. it doesn't make sense. Yep. And and uh and a big thing there was, you know, all these 
analysis, we're all taking examples from like the enterprise market, yeah. right? Where, where yes, you come in and you buy, you sell something cheaper that has the same features, and you can convince the CIO to buy it, and he doesn't care how it works. Like someone else has to actually deal with it. But the consumer market is totally different. Like people like nice things, and it's so bizarre because you look at basically every other category of products people buy, and there are successful products at the high end. It's not like it's yep. not like luxury bags get disrupted or nice clothes get disrupted or nice shoes get disrupted. No, they continue to sell and will always sell because people like nice things and yeah. why that shouldn't apply to your phone does, doesn't make any sense. Right. And isn't one of, uh, uh, Clayton, uh, Christensen, Am I, Clayton Christensen? uh, one of his examples yep. from his theory is like, uh, steel suppliers and how like the big, you know, like us steel got like undercut by like, you know, micro. Yeah. Mini, mini, mini mills. Yeah. Right. Uh, great example. And it's, you know, and I think he's, I think his, I, I, you know, I've read it and I, it's like, I'm nodding my head and it's, you know, a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but I'm like, this makes a lot of sense. I, I agree with this, but you know, uh, the way that a manufacturer who buys raw steel evaluates who they're going to buy the raw steel from is very different than the way that individual people buy their personal the, the things they use in their personal life, <laughs> you know, I made a list somewhere of all the industries that Christensen uses as examples. And they were all like airlines and like right. all these sorts of things. Like they were all business to business businesses where there was a buyer buying a product for like a fleet of people or whatever. And, and they they were not the user of the product. And so they, they weren't going to care about these sort of like consumer user experience. And the other thing I noticed at the time, there were actually lots of other examples of products where people did care where the buyer was user things right. like game consoles things like uh like clothes and accessories i just talked about a moment ago things like cars you know everyone's always used cars as an analogy for yeah. why apple would succeed and it's a totally legitimate analogy right? right because people buy nice cars does everyone buy nice cars can bmw take over the entire market selling high-priced cars no they can't but but can they sell like but are they are they going to be disrupted because chevy right. comes out with something cheap no they're, they're not the second most successful retailer, I, th I don't know if it's worldwide, but it's certainly in the United States, a year after year, uh, and they've been around for a while, uh, by square footage, second dollars or, you know, of profit by square footage of retail space is Tiffany and Company. And you can go in there and you, you know, if you've ever bought a diamond and you get like the, the color and the clarity and the cut and, and the grade and the certified and you, you can buy a cheaper diamond ring, uh, probably at, at any, almost any other store. Uh, uh, and Tiffany, you know, is the second most profitable retailer in in the world uh, by square foot. Yeah, and not, ju not just that, but but like even there, you can buy the same quality jewelry for much cheaper somewhere else. So it's not just a matter of it being jewelry. Like you're paying more for the Tiffany brand, but well, that's but, how brands work. But <laughs> like, I mean, like that's... that's uh, but you also get, it's more than just the brand though. You also get, and I can vouch for this firsthand, you get you get some of the best uh, customer experience you'll you'll get anywhere in the world in, in terms... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, 
and and how does that and people just like people thinking about this in such black and white terms and right. putting on a spreadsheet like that stuff matters like right. I mean one thing I learned when I started flying a lot for example and I, and I remember when I first got like United 1K or where you know and like yeah it's great I, I really wanted to get it because I get all the upgrades right you get like you know six international upgrades or something like that which is a huge deal but I realized actually the upgrades aren't that big of a deal it's the fact that I can pick up a phone and dial a number and a human picks up immediately and like I remember I was in Korea one time and something happened with my flight and I just dial the number pick it up and boom it was all fixed for me in like 10 minutes yeah. and like like that is worth so much at the time yeah. my whole family was with me and that that was worth a hundred upgrades right that's what that's what actually matters when it comes to these these sorts of experiences yeah uh, oh, I, I found the I found the list. By the way, the, the original article, the original disruption article, looked at disk drives, PCs, mortgage banking, microprocessors, and software. And I think it's in, and also uh, like air, yeah, digital aircraft, medical devices, things like that. Uh, I think it's interesting that PCs is in there because I think uh, have we talked about this on this podcast? I certainly talked about it on mine that the <laughs> so much bad analysis and technology comes from people that don't actually understand what happened in the PC industry in the eighties. Hmm. And, and like people have this vision of Apple being this sort of dominant force and Microsoft coming right. along and disrupting them by being open and closed. Right. And it's just utter, it's, it, it, it could not be more wrong. Right. Like Microsoft, the IBM PC came out first in 1981 and did it have a windows GUI. No, it had, uh, you know, it had a, a, a text-based operating system, but the, the point of, of Windows coming along was Windows was backwards compatible with DOS. And so right. DOS built up a huge user base, built up a huge amount of software, built up developers, the entire ecosystem before the Mac even launched. Like the Mac never had a chance relative to, to IBM PCs. And, and it turned out that adding a Windows GUI was, it was a feature. Like it was a, like obviously it was a feature that changed the world, but it was still a feature. It didn't change the way the business model worked. And, and to say that Apple lost because they were closed and Microsoft is open okay. is to utterly completely miss the point and not only and it's so damaging not just because it misses the point but also the only reason apple succeeded was because they were closed if like when apple actually opened up in the 90s it almost killed the company yeah. like being closed made them a viable company in the midst of sort of the microsoft dominance yeah. i think you would agree with this I, i've written you know we both this is a topic we've both written about and i love it but I, and, and it and it's so doesn't matter how much we write we could write about it every day for the rest of the world and it's not going to change the perception of everybody who, who there's no way you're going to shake people off that open and closed argument but the one thing that i believe firmly was that and and me personally i was i've all i to this day i'm repulsed by windows uh but especially in the in like the late 80s and there throughout the whole 90s i thought windows 95 was garbage um I agreed it looked better than Windows 3.1, but I still didn't think it looked good. And and just the way that it was, you know, built off DOS and you still had like a stupid C drive and all the ridiculous file name restrictions, blah, blah. I mean, the thousand, thousand things that were ungodly because of the way that it was built off DOS. But I also firmly believe that business wise, if Windows like to make Windows actually be good, it couldn't have been built on top of DOS. It would have needed to exactly. have been an all new operating system. And if they had done that and done a graceful job and made less something like, let's say, that was at least as elegant and self-contained as the Macintosh. I don't think it would have I think it would have failed because the, it, it was the fact that Windows built on top of DOS that that made it uh, uh, palatable to 
like the people in IT. Because I remember the time that the mentality of the people who I knew who were PC enthusiasts and would be the type of people who would be making these decisions at a business or a company is they might think, well, this is great because, you know, these people who are confused by DOS, they can run Windows and they can get this gooey thing. But I'm not, you know, their machines still booted into DOS and they only ran Windows when they typed win at the command prompt. You know, they didn't have their machine set up to boot into Windows. Their machines booted into DOS because they were, quote unquote, real computer users. And if they would have had to buy a different machine and run an incompatible operating system to get the GUI, they wouldn't they wouldn't have bought into it. It was the whole reason they they scoffed at the Mac. Yeah, it was your one. You're completely right. Uh, Two. The other thing is, you know, there was lots of software written for DOS and it needed to be able to run. And and I would go further than you. It's not just that it would have failed because uh, but the it would have failed because Microsoft was fundamentally unsuited to write a graceful, beautiful computer that was easy to use. And that's not at all a criticism. I mean, the, the, the foundation of Microsoft is responding and hustling to give consumers exactly what they want. Right. I mean, like Bill Gates and Paul Allen started the company in New Mexico because they, they won, basically someone wanted to write a basic compiler and they said, oh, we got one, we'll write it. And then they said, okay, you give it to us. And they hadn't written it yet. Right. Like they, had to go, they, had, they had to go and write it. And, and same thing with IBM. Microsoft won the IBM contract for an operating system without having an operating system. They actually bought DOS from a company called like Seattle Computer right. Company or something like that, renamed it from to MS-DOS and then gave it to IBM. Like, like, and, and again, you, it's easy to sit here from a product perspective and an Apple perspective and criticize that and mock it. You know what? There are all kinds of ways to build companies. And Microsoft, from the beginning, has given customers exactly what they want for better or worse. And, and, and they have made a whole lot of money doing it and enabled a whole lot of things. And, and implied in that is, you know, you're going to layer a GUI on top of a operating system that you bought from someone else and is a mishmash and stuff. And it's going to be clunky and hard to use. But you know what? It, it got the job done. And and you know, Mike. And this is the mistake, huge mistake they made with the phone. They just wanted to come and be like, "Oh yeah, we're going to compete with Apple on the user experience." No, you're not. You have 30 years of papering over, right. glommed together crap because it's what the customer wants. You're not going to suddenly develop the skills and mentality to build a beautiful, easy to use operating system, right? I mean, it blows my mind that Windows Phone had far worse support for enterprise features than the iPhone did from the day it launched until the day it went out of business. It's like they were crazy. They totally forgot. And this was Balmer's one of his biggest mistakes. I mean, he had a whole bunch of them, but just he completely forgot. He got so wrapped up in Microsoft being big and powerful and completely forgot the nature of the company and what they were yeah. actually good at. And and to the extent Nadala has been successful, he's been phenomenally successful. It's been in going back to and embracing that Microsoft, what they are good at. And, mm-hmm. and you know what? They go to enterprise customers like, we will help you. We'll go to the cloud with you. We have a hybrid environment. You can run some of your stuff on your on-premise or you run some of your stuff in the cloud. And it's going to be a big mess. And it's going to be messy, but we'll be messy together. And, and, and they're being extremely successful doing it because that's what Microsoft does. And uh, anyhow, sorry, that, that was that, that was a rant, but I I completely agree with you that Microsoft tried to compete with the Mac, like in a user experience perspective, they would have failed completely for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. I think that complaining about Microsoft, especially Gates, Bill Gates uh, era, Microsoft not being not producing elegant Mac caliber elegance 
intuitive software would be like complaining that, you know, you just went in the butcher shop and the guy, here's a guy who's supposed to be a professional and is, he's wearing a smock covered with blood. <laughs> You know, it's like, right. uh, that's not who they are. You know what I mean? Like Microsoft <laughs> right. is the butcher who's, you know, is get their hands are dirty and their, their work clothes are covered with blood. Um, uh, you know, and but they then, got the job done. Right. And then them, you know, trying to make windows phone was them like, you know, after doing that, that's their expertise. That's who they are. And then they're <laughs> like, I'm going to be on the cover of GQ. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you are not suddenly exactly going right. to become a sharp, snappy dresser. Uh, right, and that's the thing with Apple. Like Apple, Apple, the key, the key to Apple coming back is not is not Steve Jobs' genius directly. What, what was key was the shift in the market to the consumer market. Because the yes. thing is, Jobs was yes. always a consumer guy. Absolutely. The Mac was a consumer product. Right. The problem is, the Mac was a consumer product in a world where only businesses bought computers. And, and the big difference for the iPhone relative to the Mac is not open versus closed. It's that by two thousand and seven. The consumer market mattered far more than the business market was far larger. And and Apple had always been the right company for that market. They were just, you know, 30 years too early. Right. I, I've all, I agree completely. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I it, I love talking about this. Uh, I agree completely. And I think even Steve Jobs himself uh, overlooked that aspect. And and if you know that that, it, you know, and I think that it, that that's why the Mac in the first two years was sort of problematic for Apple because it wasn't a failure, but it wasn't the success that they had envisioned. And I think that that the success they'd envisioned was that they themselves knew how amazing it was, both compared to everything else on the market and just in and of itself, how successful they were at the hardware, at the at the software, just everything about it. Um that they were, you know, I think they were blinded by how can, you know, and even the slogan, the computer for the rest of us. Uh, there was no rest of us. Right. There was no rest of us. There was nothing for them to do. It what it would have been the computer and, and the, the, the things that were good about the Mac in 1984 are, if you just pick out a bunch of adjectives there, those all, I would wager that 98% of those adjectives apply to the iPhone in 2007. Like they're all the Absolutely. things that made, you know, the kindred spirits, same cultural DNA, same priorities. Um, it's just that the difference, the difference wasn't that one was more elegant or more ahead of the competition, uh, you know, years ahead of the competition and sweated more details and more, you know, pixel by pixel precision of how far away should these things, things be and, and all of that. They're both were the same way. The difference wasn't that one was better than the other. The difference was that in 2007, there was a tremendous reason for anybody and everybody to want to have an iPhone and there were things they would find it very useful for every single day. And in 1984, that just wasn't true of a personal computer. It's, it's spot on. And it really is the case. You know, the Mac versus Windows really is like the iPhone versus Android in every respect. It's it was the same in terms of market share. I mean, the iPhone is a little bigger than the Mac, uh, you know, e even today. But but it's still only like 10 or 12 percent worldwide. It's right. really quite small relative to Android. And it's the same from the user experience. Right. Like, like Windows has some nice features. Android has some nice features. I've used both. I've worked at Microsoft. I use it every day. I, I would be. I, 
you know, I've said before, I'd actually be fine using Windows every day. It's the third party app system that 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 is the problem, which kind of blows people's mind because they associate apps being being with Windows. Um, But but just the there's it's the details. It's the it's the ease of use. It's the scrolling. It's the it's it's all the stuff that you can't put on a spreadsheet and you can't measure and you can't put in your sort of calculation about, Oh, it's now good enough. So what's going to matter now is price because people can feel it and use it. And, and that matters again. It matters when the buyer is the user, which is the case in the consumer market. And Apple's just found found the right market. Right. And I, and I think in hindsight too, it's exactly why the entire, the entire, the entirety of the existence of next was effectively just a, a, an exile. You know, they they were just lost in the weeds in terms of ever having any hope of getting any traction whatsoever, because they were building. Yeah, these it, it, it was the it was the Mac two point Like there was no lesson learned about why the Mac failed, except the you know by pricing it the way they did, and you know they they made it a way more amazing computer, and and. Uh, but, you know, like initially it was targeted at like academia. Well, how the hell did they ever think that was going to be a big enough uh, market to, to build a successful computer by only selling it to universities, computer science departments? I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I know that next jobs, job just want job just wanted to make the best possible computer. Right. And, and, and so he he was going to find the, the that was the justification for doing it. And, and you know, that's that's the thing why you have to keep the market in mind. I, right. Again, jobs didn't change from that perspective. When he made the phone, he wanted to make the best possible phone. It's right. not like he said, oh, now the consumer market's ready. Let's do it. No, he, he just wanted like Apple's just always wanted to make the best possible computers. And those computers have shrunken in size over time. And the market has come to Apple much more than Apple has sort of gone to the market. Yeah. All right. Let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor of this episode. It's our friends at Casper. Oh, man. Do you, have you ever heard of Casper? Casper is, uh, I don't know how to describe it. They're a sleep company. Look, they've got a new mattress that they've come out with called The Wave. It is the most innovative mattress in their lineup, um, and it's the first mattress of its kind to relieve pressure at 36 different points so you can feel relaxed in ways you never thought possible. It, these are some of the features of the, the, the Wave mattresses by Casper. They've got advanced temperature regulating technology. Helps you sleep cool and comfortable without overheating during the night. Uh, only the wave has five layers of superior foam, including a cushioning top layer for maximum comfort. And it's their biggest breakthrough in sleep technology, um, in the history of the company. And look, these internet mattresses from Casper, it's, they're, they're really good. I mean, we've got a couple of them in the house. We love them. I don't know what we've, you know, I don't know what kind of mattresses we had before, but everybody likes them better than what we had before. The wave in particular though, they studied back sleepers, stomach sleepers, and side sleepers, and the wave is meant to be uh, ideal for all three types. And I said this before the last time they sponsored the show. I don't know if I'm a weirdo or what, but I'm all three. Like every time I wake up in the, in the middle of the night, if I'm like on my side, the only way I can get back to sleep is if I like turn over to my stomach or my back. Like, and if I wake up and I'm sleeping on my back, I have to like, you know, every time I wake up, you know, whether it's to go to the bathroom or just, you just wake up for a couple of seconds before you doze back off. I got to switch to another way. Um, no matter which way you sleep, the wave is a good choice for you. Uh, they've got a patent pending, patent pending contouring system that adjusts to your natural curves. Uh, and here's, here's the thing. 
It's, it's a premium mattress. It's designed to keep its original form so you'll be supported for years to come. So even after a couple of years, even though it's foam and even though it gives on the contours of your body, once you get up off the mattress, it just looks brand new. It is right back to the shape that it was when it, when it first came in. Uh, it really is great. Now, buying a mattress on the Internet, you haven't felt it. You haven't, like, sat on it. You haven't laid on it. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what this, you know, sure, I'm saying it sounds good. Here's the thing. Casper has a still a 100-night risk-free guarantee. So you buy the mattress. It shows up. When you get the Wave, uh, it, it comes with in-home white glove delivery and setup for free. So the wave mattress comes, they just come in, take it right to your room, set it up. And you have a hundred days. You call them up on the 99th day and say, I don't like this thing. They, no questions asked, come pick it up, take it back and uh, give you all your money back. So you cannot lose. You get this thing, try it for a hundred nights. And if you don't like it, you don't lose. They, they'll take the whole thing back. We really like them here. Uh, it really is a great way to buy a mattress. And... To save $100 on a Wave mattress, oh, you can save 100 bucks with this. Go to Casper.com, C-A-S-P-E-R, Casper.com slash TalkShow100. No the, just TalkShow100. And then when you check out, just remember that promo code, TalkShow100, and you save 100 bucks. Terms and conditions apply. Now, here's the other thing. There's one more thing that Casper wanted me to tell you, and I don't mind telling you. I, I, I'm not scared of the competition. Uh... But after you're done listening to this episode, sponsored by Casper, you can check out the new Casper, the podcast, sponsored by Casper. That's the name of their podcast. Casper, the podcast, sponsored by Casper. It's an entire podcast about Casper, sponsored by Casper. Casper. It's very meta. Uh, I, I'm intrigued by this. I, I, I can't imagine what the hell it's about. So I, I have to say I'm going to give it a listen. It's available now on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'm I damn curious about that. And I only thing I hope, <laughs> I just hope it doesn't mean that they're going to stop sponsoring other podcasts. But I'll check it out. Casper the Podcast, sponsored by Casper. I wish they would have asked me advice on the, on the title of their podcast. <laughs> it's a little bit of a mouthful. Um, what else do we have to talk about? We've got uh, rolling out of these quarterly results. You wrote about this. There's this is pick. Everybody's talking about this. Who's going to be the first trillion dollar company? And what do we mean by that? I'll wait. Ben. Oh, sorry. I was muted. Um, I, I just had the world's best explanation of market cap. Uh, but, but alas, gone to history. No, basically, you know, how many shares you have times the share price. Right. Uh, that's your market cap, how much your company is worth. Right. So you, and, you couldn't uh, actually use it. In theory, it would be the price you'd have to pay to buy every share of the company. But, it, in, you know, th that's not possible. Nobody has it. You know, by the time you start buying this, you know, nobody's going to buy every share of Apple. No, you know, but no, it, I, wait, it's theoretically possible, right? Theoretically but, possible, yeah. but that's the price you would pay. Number of shares outstanding times the current price. That's your market cap. So in other words, what the company's worth. And there's a couple of the who are the companies who are in the running for this? It's the they're all fairly obvious. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a little, actually I should get the, the updated numbers because Apple's uh, share price was 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 up a lot today. A lot today, five percent. Real quick. 
And on a day when the market was literally like dead even, at least last I checked, it was right at like zero for the S&P 500. We got uh, Apple's tops. A second is uh, Amazon. I think Microsoft is now slipped into third. Microsoft and Google are very, cl- very close. Microsoft and Google. Yeah, Microsoft has been. Uh, they passed Google a few weeks ago, uh, which, which is which is interesting. Uh, and then in fifth place is oh, Facebook. Yeah. So the big five. Apple is now at uh, eight hundred and ninety four billion dollars. Amazon seven hundred sixty one billion. Uh, green on my chart here is Microsoft at 716 billion, uh, Google at 712. I am ignoring rounding here, and uh, Facebook is at 508. What's interesting is that uh, Facebook and Amazon uh, in last fall were about the same price. They yeah. were both worth about 520 billion dollars. Facebook is slightly down since then, and Amazon has increased by 50 percent. Well, no, and uh, if you look at your graph, I you go back to all the way back to Facebook's IPO. Really? Really, uh, they tracked with Amazon very closely, where for the first year or so, they were under Amazon. And then starting in 2014, they, they crossed paths and then they actually surpassed Amazon, but not by a lot. And then for, you know, for the most part throughout 2016 and 2017, to basically the end of 2017. Yeah, yeah. they were uh, effectively. I mean, we're talking about like the just looking at this graph. Clearly, the type of thing where like one day's bad news, you know, like Jeff Jeff Bezos has a hangnail, uh, could you know could alter it. Where they were dead even, and then all of a sudden, holy hell, they they're separated by a lot now. Yeah, two hundred and two hundred and sixty billion dollars, which, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, no one knows anything is probably part of the answer. And, and right. it's all a bit of a power game. Right? right. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's it's kind of breaking rights more than right. anything. And, and who's actually doing the breaking other than fans, as it were. But I, I thought it was a useful. The reason why I thought it was interesting to look at it from this perspective is one, uh, Apple and Amazon are, are, are the top two. Uh, and I wanted to kind of draw out a point about how these companies are similar. But two, the fact that a round number, $1 trillion market cap, it doesn't really mean anything. It's kind of irrational. Yet we attach all kinds of importance to it, I think gets at the broader point about the consumer market that we talked about previously, right? People care about People care about silly stuff and quote unquote silly stuff. Well, and, and like you yeah, said, maybe it, it's like you said, it, is it really different if you're worth a billion or if you're worth nine hundred ninety nine uh, billion? No, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't really matter. But we think it matters. We care. We right. do care. You know, does it really matter if your if your phone doesn't scroll absolutely buttery smooth? It doesn't actually matter. You know, you can still see the same content. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, this is you've had this debate a million times with Android fans or Windows fans. Does that stuff actually matter? That was kind of I'll tie it back. I'll tie it back to the opening of the show. Would it really have been any less amazing athletically if Wilt Chamberlain had scored 98 points in an NBA basketball game? No, it would have still been as, you know, at least 98% as much of a unbelievable, it doesn't seem mathematically possible achievement. But guess what? We wouldn't talk about it as much because he scored 100 points in an NBA basketball game, right? Those, right. those uh, two, or 99 points, right? If he'd had 99 points, it, it would not have been as special. 
Yeah, I mean, Russell Westbrook basically won the MVP last year because he averaged a triple-double, which right. is a total sort of like meaningless stat in the grand scheme of things. And I think it was a, 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 a he shouldn't have won it. But you know what? It's a great story. Right. It's, it's, a, it, it's a great story. And stories matter. Yeah. Humans, like yep. humans run on stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I look at my own site. The articles that often resonate are not the ones with the brilliant analysis or hmm. something clever. It's the ones that tell a story. And, and, and people like, that that matters in a way that people like people know it implicitly, but they have a very difficult time articulating that. I think it's into the stuff we're talking about disruption and analyzing companies, right? right? Like consumer consumer if you're selling to consumers, there's so much that goes into it that does doesn't go on a spreadsheet and, and that sort of stuff matters. Yeah. Uh Anyhow, so the, the, the point of this article was, you know, these companies, Apple and Amazon, are really polar opposites. Everything about them is different, right? I mentioned the phone, the Fire Phone before. Like, it, it was predictable that it was a failure because a, 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 Amazon is even more extreme of a service company than Apple is a product company, if that's even possible, yeah. right? Well, so let me hear. I'm just gonna, of, I'm going to read your words from from uh, today's Daily Update because I think this is perfect. Am, I, here's what you said. I mean it when I say these companies are the complete opposite. Apple sells products. It makes Amazon sells products made by anyone and everyone. Apple brags about focus. Amazon calls itself the everything store. Apple is a product company that struggles at services. Amazon is a services company that struggles at product. Apple has the highest margins and profits in the world. Amazon brags that others margin is their opportunity and until recently barely registered any profits at all. And underlying all of this, Apple is an extreme example of a functional organization and Amazon is an extreme example of a divisional one. I mean, that's perfect. I mean, I, I you know, you're never going to come out with a better thing like that speaking here extemporaneously on the podcast. So I've just got to say it right there. I thought that was my favorite paragraph I've read in a while because that is. Well, thank you. That is spot on, though. They really are opposites. Yeah, and, and and it gets back to the Microsoft point, right? There's no like one way to succeed in business, and you know I think it's easy for you know Apple fans to fall into the lens of everything should be like Apple because Apple's super successful. When the reality is, is most people should not be like Apple because what Apple does is really difficult and hard to accomplish, and has so like so much that goes into it. I think I've I think I've mentioned this on the podcast previously, but I was talking to a a Windows engineer uh, back when I was at Microsoft about why. Again, I, I always mention the Android scrolling thing because it's my single least favorite thing about Android, and and I don't want to hear about it. Even the latest phones still have still have problems. Uh, but but I was complaining about it way back then. I'm like, why is it that Windows phone can come out in V1 has has good scrolling, and iPhone obviously is amazing, and, and the Android is so bad. Anyone who's some technical stuff about you know some of the Android implementation details and and, and the the you know the, how it's running a virtual warehouse sort or of stuff. But he's like, honestly, the real answer is at the end of the day. Microsoft and Apple have been writing graphics drivers for 30 years and Google has been writing them for three years. <laughs> He's like, it, like you, there's just stuff you learn that that pays off. And, you know, certainly that goes into all sorts of Apple's advantages. But again, th that's not the only way to succeed. And and heaven knows having great scrolling is not the only way to succeed in the phone market, as Google sort of clearly demonstrated. And it's useful to think about these two companies in that context. Like there's no one way, right way to do it. No, it's very true. It's it, very true. I I, I, I I cast myself very far afield with that anecdote, but hopefully hopefully <laughs> came back in. But I, I I think what was interesting though about these two companies is you know the the both are really fanatical 
from sort of the top down about emphasizing that they're focused on, on the on the end user, on, on the customer and what makes the customer happy. And and the reason why I think that's that's interesting was, you know, one, it's always been striking that both would speak the same language yet go about their business so completely differently. Right. Right. And, but but two, you know, like I said, I like to think about this sort of disruption thing. And I wrote that article around the Apple around the iPhone 5C that was saying why Apple would not be disrupted. And my take there was if you're focused on the user experience, on making something that's great to use, the great thing about it is <laughs> you're never going to perfect it. Like nothing is ever going to be perfect. Right. And, and or and, good enough. You know, there's a... Right? No, right. Yeah, there is no good enough when it comes to, like, the experience of using something. And good enough is like a disruption term. And there's good enough and overshoot. This idea that the incumbent overshoots what customers want and customers stop caring about that feature and they start focusing on other things like price. But if the, you can't overshoot how great it is to use something. Right. You're not like, oh, this phone is too fun to use. I want to get a different one. <laughs> and it's as you point out, you quote from uh, I forget if it was Bezos shareholder letter this year or his original one that he always reprints from 1997. Um, but that, you know, one of the great things about customers is they're they're never fully satisfied because once you've delighted them with two day delivery, for example, for free. Uh, and they're like, holy crap, I just ordered this two days ago and I didn't pay anything extra. And he, ding dong, here it is at my door. Uh, they're amazed and they're happy. And they think that's this Amazon is great. And then like by the time the third box arrives like that, they expected two days. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, it showed up at 7 p.m. Why wasn't it here at 4 p.m.? Right. Right? And then you've got to do one day delivery. And now they're, they've got to get same day delivery to get, you know, the, the wow factor in. Uh that it, you know, you, you get, you know, Bezos emphasize it, but it's true. And everybody knows it's true. We get used to everything, right? I mean, I, are you amazed that you get to uh, go to the bathroom indoors with a electric light, <laughs> electric light over your head uh, and have a, a, a water system where you can hit a button or pull a dial and the, the waste just goes away? <laughs> Are you amazed by that? No, we were talking about we were talking about calling home, right? right. Like I, 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 we started this call with me complaining about Skype as usual. When when fifteen years ago, I was standing at a payphone trying to call home using a calling card, right? right? I mean, it's it, it's so true, and that was sort of the key addition. That was the point of this article. It was like I wanted to sort of go back to that article I wrote five years ago. And it's like you know, I actually didn't have this quite right. It's not just that a user experience can never because I always thought about it as like a, like a, like you approach a perfect user experience but you can never get there but actually it's it's different the the consumer expectations like you know the phrase moving the goalposts are they're constantly changing what is great today is totally blase tomorrow and it follows that if your business if if your business is predicated not on a product and this is where apple arguably went wrong with the phone you know we talked about it earlier with, with 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 the with the airport if your focus if your focus is not the product but on the user on making them happy, meeting their needs, and you're able to sort of let go of the means by which you do it and keep that as your sort of North Star, that is the best possible way to build a long-term sustainable business because it's like having, it's like, you know, the, those Greyhound races where they have like the, the, the bone going around, they're all chasing it, right? And you never catch it. Like you're never going to catch it. And from a business perspective, that's great because to Achieve your goal is often the worst thing that can happen to you as a company, because then you're like, OK, what's next? <laughs> and, and and that's never going to happen if your goal is making people happy on a consistent basis. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, just you, people, everybody listening to us talk. I mean, the average episode of the talk show, I think, is somewhere over 100 megabytes. And yes, I could, if I really were constrained, I could, I, you know, and I were doing this 15 years ago, I'd use a lower bit rate. But whatever size I would have got to where we were still, it sounded decent enough that people wouldn't mind listening to us. Uh, whatever big that MP3 file is times how many people download this show, it would have bankrupted me. <laughs> and I, I don't know, you know, 15 years ago when I started Daring Fireball, there was no way to host a pot for someone like me to host a podcast. It wasn't possible. It, you know, and that's yeah. just 15 years. Yeah. And it's like this with everything. Yeah. I mean, you look at the phone and, and you know, we, there's complaints about like, Oh, portrait mode is kind of lame. It takes you to have weird artifacts in your picture. It's like right. one, you're taking a picture on your phone Two, It looks amazing. Three, the computer is simulating thousands of dollars worth of equipment and doing a massive job. Yeah, it looks like terrible. It looks like shit. And like, it, it, but it, it's, it's a great thing. And honestly, like I, I kind of meant, I mentioned this, I don't think in this article, but a daily update, like there, there is a very, that, that phrase about consumers being divinely disconnect, discontent is a very inherently optimistic sort of phrase about humanity in general, mm. because you think about like automation coming along and people are so worried about people losing their jobs and computers taking over. Well, if you look back, you had the same concerns with the agriculture revolution, the same concerns of the industrial revolution. And not to say the transition wasn't painful and difficult and, and it was, and there were wars and it was terrible and awful. But if you just, so I'm not at all overlooking that. And I think we should take that to, to heart when we think about the internet revolution, what's happening. But, but if you zoom out, like you and I, you are getting paid for this podcast and uh, I get paid to, to write, write these articles and those jobs didn't exist. And yeah, maybe we are on the sort of the cutting edge of new jobs enabled by the internet. But you look at, you look around you at the next hundred people you meet on the street, how many of them are doing jobs that existed in any shape, way or form a hundred years ago? And why? Because humans are divinely disconnect, discontent. We're always figuring out problems and ways to fix them. Right. And both, I I think your key insight in that, in that update is that in their own ways and they are different ways, but in their own ways, Amazon and Apple at their fundamental level are both keyed in to take advantage of that and to push the limits of, you know, to push that ahead um, you know, I, we were, I was just talking to somebody, uh, to a couple of guys, Glenn Fleischman and, uh, um, a couple of others, uh, about the original, I forget what we were reminiscing about on Twitter, but about the original iPad, uh, event and the, uh, bunch of us were there in the hands-on area until Apple <laughs> very politely, like 90 minutes after, you know, it opened up we're like, Hey <laughs> Guys, we don't want to kick you out, but uh, we're kicking you out. We're, we're kicking you out because we could stop playing with it, and and we weren't. None of us were on the the at, the, at that time in 2010. We're on like the review. You know that was that that was still back in 2010 when there were like Walt Mossberg and David Pogue and Ed Beg at USA Today were like the only three people who got like review units. Um, so we didn't get to leave with one. We had to like wait until they went on sale and buy one and wait till it showed up. So, you know, we wanted to play with it. And the thing I was so amazed about was just how gorgeous the display was. I was just like, I'd never seen a 10 inch display that was so beautiful and that the pixels seemed so small <laughs> and the color was so bright and it was like, it was definitely a better display than any MacBook display at the time. It was just better. Uh, 
those displays. Especially because that was pre-retina. So, yeah. So it, there was no, but that, even though that wasn't retina, it, it looks, it, it, there was no comparison. It looks terrible now. It looks like it's broken because <laughs> it's not retina. Yeah. Uh, Apple is keyed in on that. Amazon is keyed in on that. And they're, the thing is, and, and, and in both of those ways, they're aligned with their customers. They're, they, that, that all of the ways that Apple is pushing ahead to make things nicer experience on their products is about making their customers happier. And all of the ways that Amazon is focused on, uh, you know, getting better service and providing better products and more products and faster shipping and getting into groceries with the whole foods is all about making their customers happier. They're just in perfect alignment with that. And with Facebook and Google and, you know, Microsoft is sort of the wild card, right? Because they're just sort of, they're like, your description is that they are an enterprise company now. And so they're, they're the, the, the odd one out of all five. But Facebook and Google are effectively in the same business, selling ads targeted to what they know about the people using their products. And in a lot of ways, their business is not aligned with making their customers ever happier because... Apple only makes money when people buy more stuff from Apple. And so they're only buying, you know, it's the more money they make from John Gruber, the, you know, they're not doing anything that annoys me, but to make more money from me, Google has to show me more ads, uh, or possibly ever more intrusive ads that freak me out because how do you know that I was looking for that, et cetera, et cetera. It's not in perfect alignment with my customer satisfaction and my happiness and my pleasure with Google or Facebook. It's true, though. But but one thing I do push back on is, you know, the whole phrase like uh, if you're if you're not the customer, you're the product or whatever that that is. I hate it. (laughs) I absolutely hate it. And I hate it because the let's go back to Apple and for a second. What, What makes this focus on the customer so powerful is not just that it keeps your business sort of relevant in the long term in a really powerful way, but also that gives you power over your entire sort of supply chain. In, in, in Apple, Apple, it can be the supply chain of, of actual supply chain and components, or it could be the App Store. And, and all the, like Apple's, the real reason Apple beat so big this quarter is because their services revenue was through the roof. And at the end of the day, Apple's services revenue, well, they deserve it. It's kind of bullshit, right? Because it's all app developers and Apple's just taking a skim off of it. Why can they do that? Because they own the, they own the customer. If those app developers want to reach the customers, they have to go through Apple and Apple's going to take going to take a piece of that. I mean, that's Amazon's long term goal me, as well. They, they take a let me take. Sorry, let me, well, let me take a note here. And I don't want to interrupt you. Uh, I mean, you're going to. Uh, this is going to be a long side. Well, well, the, so maybe you better finish you know, your thought. Well, well, the point, though, is is there is power that comes from owning the customer relationship. And that absolutely applies to Facebook and Google. The reason they are so powerful, the reason why, you know, Google is always my favorite example. Like Google, what, what do, every single site on the Internet actually goes to the effort to make their site amenable to Google. And they, they have like a, a map of their site. Like that's there just for for search crawlers. Right. That in, according to Google specifications. Like Google doesn't have to do any work to have every like everyone does the work for Google to put themselves there so Google can profit. Why? Because all the customers reach the go to the Internet via Google. Same thing with Facebook. And and so there is a limit. And Facebook, for example, they stopped the number of ads that went into the newsfeed a year ago. And and why? Because they were worried about the customer experience. No, not because people were paying them, but because all their power and all their profits and all the things they get from advertisers 
ultimately rest on the fact that they have all the customers. Yeah. And so is it as aligned as an Apple Amazon model? No, it's not. But it's it's also not the case where they just treat people like crap because they don't need to care. Yeah. They do need to care and they, they, they do care very much. So I've uh, this thought has been festering in my head for a while. And it's, you know, I, I'm always I know that there's people out there who think I'm always looking for <laughs> for ways to say good things about Apple, but I'm actually always thinking the opposite is I think, uh, you know, I know where my biases are and I want to defend against them. And the services thing and the growing services revenue. And, and if you look at, you know, go to Jason Snell's six colors.com where he's got some breaks down Apple's financials into graphs, which I think are very well done and really help visualize the, the actual data and, and to visualize the trends. The services thing was stuck in the four billions per quarter for a long number of quarters, and it was steadily going up quarter after quarter. But in the last couple of years, it's it's gone on a curve. It's no longer linear. It is going upwards and it's a curve and it coincides with when Apple has started talking specifically about services, services, services on these quarterly calls and, and building it up. And they're, you know. They're, they weren't wrong to do it because they, they were correct that this was going to be a bigger part of of their revenue. But listen to this. Here's a tweet from Mark Gurman yesterday. Uh, you know, in his role as a Bloomberg reporter, I guess he got to speak to Apple's CFO. Here's his tweet. And while Apple Music is all the talk, when I spoke with Apple CFO Luca uh, Maestri this afternoon, he said that the App Store is actually the strong driver of the rapid services growth. Um, and you, I, you know, I don't think that's a surprise you. You sort of alluded to that a few moments ago. Well, here's my sort of, hmm, about that. Where, where's the money that the app store makes coming from? I think it's games and what type of games are they making the money from? I think a lot of it is, are these games like candy crush? And I, I don't think that that is a source of revenue that Apple should be particularly proud of. I, you know, I think that there's this whole sector of casual games that are, um, Oh shoot. You're going to have to help me on this there. So there's pay, uh, pay, pay to win, pay to win. And so, so, so there's three, there's three types, which is, uh, uh, or sorry, they're free to play. Uh, both pay to win free to play are the same idea. The idea is you, you, you can pay, uh, you can play it for free, but if you actually want to win the game, you're going to have to pay money along the way, uh, as opposed to, uh, free to win, which, which you never, it's free and you can win the game without paying a dime, like, like Fortnite, which, uh, yeah. Fortnite is a game. I wrote about it recently. My son is into it. I just saw an article in the New York Times today about how Fortnite is driving this trend of esports, where people are. They're actually like, it's it's like it literally. This is, it sounds amazing, it, but they're rejuvenating malls and movie theaters. You know how like retail in the U.S. has gone into decline, and and shopping malls. Uh, a lot of shopping malls have either closed or they've like closed like the West Wing and moved everybody to the East Wing and have. They're re opening the malls to build theaters where people can watch people play video games and the leading game is Fortnite. And if you had told me this a year ago, I would have rolled my eyes, but I really, I don't play Fortnite. I've never, I haven't played it for a moment. Uh, but I've, I've spent 
not hours, but well over an hour in the aggregate watching my son play. And I enjoy it. I enjoy watching him play the game. It is to me, I, I, I see the brilliance of this Fortnite game. It, it, it is to me clearly more balanced in a way that a sport is properly balanced, right? Like the rules of any successful sport have some kind of balance to them between the offense and the defense, right? Like the, the rules of every sport, basketball, soccer, baseball, whatever you name it, it, start out shaky and then they evolve in the way that makes it a better game. Like it, you, it, basketball originally didn't have dribbling, <laughs> You had you just it was like uh, like ultimate frisbee sort of like that. Like if you had the ball, you had to you had to stay still and pass it to somebody else. Well, you know, drib- yep. dribbling made it a better game. Uh, Fortnite has rules and and it just seems balanced in a way that is like a sport. I can see it. Um, but the amazing thing about Fortnite is it's a free game. It's it's super high quality graphics and sound and everything, but you can download it for free and play it for, for free. And you have just as good a chance of winning and growing an experience as somebody who buys their, they make money through in-app purchases, but their in-app purchases are for things like uh, costumes for your character and dances, dance moves your character can pull uh you know, effectively like sticker packs for a game and they don't give your nope. character any sort of advantage. So I'm, I'm a grown man with a nice income. So I could, if I were a Fortnite enthusiast, easily pay them, let's say a hundred dollars of real us dollars to buy stuff. And there are games like this and, and buy weapons and armor, uh, and somebody else like a 14 year old kid, uh, who doesn't have a job and doesn't have money and has parents who say, no, I'm not giving you a hundred dollars to spend on in game garbage, uh, doesn't have them and can't beat me because I've got these weapons. Fortnite is the opposite of that. You play for free and you have every bit as good a chance as somebody who pays. That's amazing to me. And then, you know, Candy Crush is the one I'm familiar with, but there's dozens of, and I know there's all these games with angry, uh, cartoon characters with beards. Uh, <laughs> I forget that, you know, cl- clash of clans, clash of clans. Right? where yeah. if you don't pay that, you sure it's a free download for the app, but if you don't pay them money and keep paying them money, <laughs> As you continue your addiction to this game, you don't have a chance or you have barely a chance, you know, and like, yep. you, you know, no, it's, uh, so I, I two, two points follow up. One, you are exactly right that the vast majority of Apple's revenue from the store comes from the, exactly those type of games. And I, I wrote about this uh, uh, way, way back when Strikery started that I, I same thing. I felt like Apple was being blinded. Like this is when I was on, on my big campaign that Apple needed to allow uh, upgrade pricing and they need to allow subscription for apps because I'm like, they think the app store is a huge success, but actually they're making all this money on these games. And it's not just that, that the games were of question questionable you know are they is that something that you want to be can you be proud of making money off of all those games but but also that those all those games were easily ported to android like there's no they don't have any interaction with the sort of with with the operating system there's no it's not like they're using ios controls right. to 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 build it and so and that's they all were they were all, all ported and and it really diluted apple's once sort of really meaningful app advantage when actually it ended up being that that this is the stuff that actually that actually mattered. Like I still believe Apple 
foreclosed a huge opportunity to have a thriving ecosystem of high-end productivity apps that would have never been ported to Android because those are the apps that have been so much more difficult to port, not just because porting is hard in general, because Android's fractured and there's so many devices to support and all that stuff's real, but that's easy to handle if you're just running a game on Unity and Unity's abstracting everything away for you, right? And and Apple, I think, was another example where they were were getting billions of dollars (laughs) and and it blinded them to, to what was going on there. So that's, that's number one. Number two, though, this this idea of these games. I wrote this article called Selling Feelings. I, I put it in the show notes. And in this case, I was talking about League of Legends, which was the same sort of idea and, and also very popular from a sort of eSport perspective, although not not Fortnite level. Uh, but or or I should give credit to Players Unknown's Battlegrounds, which Fortnite was, was kind of a, this the second version c- came after them. But but the. This idea of creating a world that people like to be in and and has a visual component and an audience and people watching. And then once you create the world, then you own the economy of the world and and you can actually sell stuff. And and selling the stuff, again, is no different than selling like a a luxury handbag. Right. You you, you buy it because you you enjoy it. It gives you status. You like showing it off. It uh, it differentiates you. And like these companies are creating worlds and they're creating more immersive worlds and larger worlds by virtue of being free because everyone can be there. Everyone can watch it. Everyone can be familiar with it. And and free is a big deal like that. You know, you talk about Facebook and Google like they they will never be supplanted by a paid competitor ever. It's folly to even think about it because both of them are predicated on having the most possible people, the most possible data, which means a free, it's like our messaging discussion earlier, a free alternative is always going to win. And it's the same thing here. If you have a free game, a big reason why Fortnite displaced players on those battlegrounds is you had to pay you had to pay for players on those battlegrounds in Fortnite was free. And so you're going to have more users, but you have more users. You actually have new, completely new capabilities to sell things that, that yes, they seem stupid, right? They seem stupid. Like scrolling seems stupid. They seem stupid. Like all the sort of like, like 10, like $1 trillion seems stupid. Yes. If you want to take a very analytical, you know, sort of nerdy approach and say, well, 999 million is the same as 1 trillion. Who really cares? I, yes, I guess you're right, but that's not how, humans actually work humans actually care about round numbers humans actually care about having a cool dance move humans actually care about showing off they actually care about status and all these games are profiting by tapping into by becoming more human by becoming more in touch with what customers actually want right right like uh you know uh we go to the playground and i'm wearing uh you know, $150 pair of LeBron sneakers from Nike and you're wearing a $40 pair of sneakers. Do I have any kind of advantage to beat you on the court? No. Uh, but is there, you know, is there a reason, you know, might you be jealous of my $150 sneakers? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the game, I just find it fascinating. I feel like exactly like you said, it is more like real life. Like there is, you know, human emotions, status and, you know, just feeling, you know, the way you, if you really feel like you've got some cool sneakers, you know, you feel good about yourself. Um, I, it's really fascinating to me, but I really think that this services thing, I'm not saying Apple should be ashamed of it, but, I just don't think I don't know that that's entirely clean money that's coming from those games like Candy Crush. And and it's not, you know, you know, I like I like playing casino games. I I don't like playing slot machines personally, but, you know, I don't you know, I'm not going to you know, if that's you know, it's clearly more popular than than 
the table games that I like to play. Um, and I get it. I know that there are people who, you know, can't handle, you know, their gambling addiction. Um, you know, I'm sort of a libertarian in the sense that I don't think that casinos should be illegal because some people have a problem with gambling. I don't think alcohol should be illegal because there are many people who can't control their consumption of alcohol. Uh, I think those things are unfortunate, but I don't think, you know, personally, and I think most people agree with me. I mean, our, our country tried, tried outlawing alcohol and it didn't go, didn't go very well. Um, you know, it's not a perfect world, Uh, but you know, that said, and so I don't think that like, I'm not willing to say that Apple should ban a candy crush type games from the app store, but I, I still, I don't know that they should be proud about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the next few years, the attention of the entire world sort of comes down on those type of games and the people who are addicted to them. Cause I, what I've read and I don't think this is surprising is that those games make almost all of their money from, and they even use the same term that casinos use. They call them whales, right? It's yep. there's all of the regular people who might just enjoy candy crush and pay, you know, maybe they paid, I don't know, 10, $20 a week to, to buy their gold coins and, and can easily afford 10 to $20 a week. And you think like, but that's, cra-, you know, in one sense, you think that's crazy because like, you know, you, you buy like a high end new title for the PlayStation and it's $60 and that's like an expensive video game, right? 60 bucks. And you get like the, the new, uh, whatever it's called. Um, and here there's, you know, millions of people spending, let's, I don't know, 10, 20 bucks a week on candy crush. And you think, well, hell, if you spend 10 bucks a week on candy crush, that's, that's $500 a year for a video game. Like if you spend 20, it's a thousand, you know, but you know, people, there's a lot of people who spend 20 bucks a week on scratch off tickets at the, for the lottery. Uh, you know, you, you, that's not a problem. But the, the the thing I've read is that there's the, the problem is the people who are spending, you know, a hundred or $150 a week or however much money they have in their debit account, they spend on candy crush stuff, you know, money that they can't afford to lose. And that those are the people who they make the overwhelming amount of money from. And I, I do wonder whether, Ultimately, a company like Apple and Google, you know, for running these stores and enabling this, you know, you have to look at that. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's my side rant on on the services revenue, quote unquote services. No, I mean, the, the, the whole, like, I mean, what's the, well, here's another example. I mean, this, this is an issue with all the surface revenue. And if you want to get into Apple in long-term concerns, it remains being that they, they start reaching into areas that they're not as great at for growth. And, and that's, you know, it's not as great of a customer experience, but, but for the, um, here's a great, perfect example. What's the second biggest item in services revenue after the app store? Do you know? Um, no, actually, I, I don't know, and I don't even. I, I feel like I should be good at guessing. I, this. iCloud, iCloud storage, really? iCloud storage. Did they, it is that crappy five gigabytes on your phone, uh, and it comes up bugging you, bugging you, bugging you to upgrade to storage. And Apple is out here on these earnings calls bragging about the fact that they provide a shitty backup experience on their phones, and it makes them a lot of money for all intents and purposes. That's and, a, and again, this is where they get in trouble because this is their narrative. The services are driving it, and and from a financial perspective, it's a very fair argument to make because 
because yes, our user base may not be growing very rapidly or, or, or maybe not at all, but we're making more and more money from, from, from our users. But that money, it's, it's not all like making a great customer experience money. It's just not. And and it's really, you know, wow, that's, I've, I'm sad to hear that. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully, Hopefully they're of the opinion that they can increase those storage tiers and keep selling, uh, you know, uh, you know, keep making that money even by making the free tier a lot bigger than five gigabytes. Uh, it would be interesting to know how that breaks down, like how many of the people, because I think the biggest problem with their storage tiers, I think all of them should be bigger for what you're paying for um, or cheaper for the same prices one way or the other. But the single biggest problem to me is the five gigabyte free tier, because most people want to use the free tier and five gigabytes just isn't enough. And every single year it becomes less good because the biggest thing, at least in mine in my account, and that certainly most people's is their photos and videos and their photos and videos keep getting bigger because the cameras are getting better. I mean, we should, you know, I'm, I'm 4K is off by default, and I'm sure a very law, a majority of iPhone users don't even know that they could enable 4K uh, in settings. Not that it's hidden, but that it's just not the thing people think about. Most people think I want to shoot video, and they just go to photos and scroll over to video, and they need to shoot video, right? Um, but even those default videos are getting bigger because the camera's getting better. Yep. And well, here, here you go from 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 the earnings call breaking. iCloud Luca Maestri. iCloud storage revenue is up by over fifty percent year over year to a new all time record. I really hope that they think that they see that that's however good that is that it's still they need to because that's one of the things I'm looking for at WWDC this year is I if they don't announce. You know, like to me, it's very much equivalent, you know, because it's storage. So it's very comparable to the 16 gigabyte base storage on the actual phones for a number of years and how long they stuck with 16 gigabytes as the entry level, Um, which is is problematic because the OS itself was has always been five, six gigabytes. So as a percentage of free space, the size of the OS mattered way more for 16. It's just, it's just almost impossible for even a typical consumer to keep everything in 16 gigabytes. And they kept it for too long. And at the point where I really felt like, Hey, this is, you know, I was even bringing it up. It was something I brought up, I think at least two years in a row with uh, Phil Schiller on the talk show live at WWDC. And I felt like when they finally upped the base storage to 32 was when it was at the point where I really couldn't I I couldn't agree that this was even morally acceptable. You know, that this is just criminal to charge people because the app part of the Apple brand is you can't go wrong with an Apple product. Right. You come in the Apple store and everything part of the brand is part of the way that the the company is supposed to be. We're not going to sell you something that's actually a bad product, like the lowest model of anything is is still a good product. Um, that's why the 999 uh, MacBook Air is starting to, you know, starting to, to raise eyebrows, right? Like, is that, is it really justifiable to charge $1,000 for the MacBook Air as we know it with the non-retina screen and uh, a, a CPU that came out in 1983? 
it's questionable. Um, 16 gigabyte iPhones were like that. And the, to me, the five gigabyte cloud iCloud storage is, is maybe even worse because of how much more important backups are than anything else and how many people there are. And it doesn't make sense. It comes back to, you know, you and I were just talking about this earlier in the show that people aren't entirely rational in what they do, right? That people will buy $700 iPhones happily or at least willingly, and then refuse to spend 99 cents a month <laughs> to increase their iCloud storage. Uh, nope. You know, it, whether it's irrational or whether it's the confusion, you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time when people talk about this, where they'll have like, you know, their mom was having or somebody else in their family is having a, their dad's having a problem with the iPhone. It's barking about something. And then they, you know, take a look at it. And it's because the iCloud is full. He's like, well, I don't even know what an iCloud is. Why the hell would I spend 99 cents a month for an iCloud? I don't know what an iCloud is, even though that's exactly what would solve the problem of their backups not being able to go to iCloud because they ran out of storage. They just won't do it. It's not the 99 cents. It's just irrational, but they won't do it. So the, the free, uh, that's, that's really, uh, this services thing, I, it's, I, I don't know. No, it's it's it, it, the whole thing is kind of stinky, right? right? If you think about Apple's thing, I mean, like again, the thirty percent again, it's Apple's right. Thirty percent is lower than what you know CompUSA used to charge to put software on the shelf, and anyone can put their software there. I'm not like I'm not saying Apple's is not in their rights to 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 charge it, but at the end of the day, they are charging thirty percent for doing nothing right. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, right? right? Like it is a tax that they are in a position to charge, and. And it is the basis, again, that this whole narrative, and again, it's a legitimate narrative that they're driving. And, and to me, that's a little, it's a little concerning, you know, that the, the growth story for this company is not about being what's best for the consumer in, in some respects. If you, or, and again, I'm not saying that in an extreme hyperbolic sort of right. way, just pointing out this is where yeah. this is where things can go wrong. Yeah. This is where slippage can occur yeah. when you act, when you do lose sight of the customer. Right. Anywhere where Apple's alignment is off with what's good for the customer, given that they're, you know, the money that they're happily willing to spend the money, their exchange is bad when and if they think they're making money by keeping the five gigabyte tier for free because X 50 percent more people year over year are willing to pay for something, some level of storage, there are still uh, untold millions of customers who are never going to pay a dollar for iCloud storage who now have photos and videos that aren't getting backed up at all. And that is (laughs) that is worse for those customers than this extra couple of billion dollars is for Apple as a company. And I know that sounds, I, again, I always make the joke that this show specializes, you know, should be subtitled spending Tim Cook's money. But I really do believe that, that, you know, there's, it's, it's just antithetical to Apple's brand to pinch every penny or try to milk every dollar they can out of something. It's just not, it's not them. Hmm. Well, there's, there's our, there's our bad news. Uh, we got to wrap up soon. This has been going on for a while. Do you want to do something uh, short on T-Mobile and Sprint merging? Which is really an acquisition. Uh, I, 
it is an acquisition, which is interesting because uh, when they tried to do it a few years ago, it was actually Sprint trying to buy T-Mobile. But mm. uh, it's it's it, I mean, it's probably hard to get into in too much depth. I think you said it well on your post and I, I wrote something similar that the, the real question here is, is this going from four carriers to three carriers or is it actually going from two carriers to three carriers? Yeah. And uh, and, and I think, you know, it, it, I think it depends on your perspective. If you look backwards, there's no question T-Mobile really shook up the industry. Yep. Like they they did cause everyone to lower prices. They they undid the phone subsidy yep. sort of you know, uh, issue. And they, they made a big difference. And there's a great example of how competition was a great thing. Uh, the, the real challenge, I think, is 5G because fi- just transitions are expensive in general. And 5G is going to be way more expensive than any other transition because a, a core piece of 5G is using what's called millimeter wave spectrum, which has way more bandwidth, but can travel a far shorter distance. And so what's going to happen is instead of having, you know, big cell towers that reach out many miles, there's going to be like antennas everywhere. Like think about every utility pole in an urban area is going to have antennas on it for for 5G. And that's going to be so much more expensive and hard to build out that uh, both T-Mobile and Sprint are just at a massive, massive, massive disadvantage Hmm. relative to Verizon and AT&T. And and it's going to be really hard to see them competing in any meaningful way in 5G if they're not combined. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm leaning towards thinking it should be allowed, but I can very much respect the argument that it shouldn't and, and T-Mobile you know, being evidence of that. Yeah, and I think I, I, and I've been impressed with T-Mobile. T-Mobile is the company where I uh, that's where my secondary, I'm, I'm on Verizon we have a Verizon family plan for our iPhones but I have a T-Mobile, a $50 a month T-Mobile uh, account that I use for either secondary iPhones or you know I usually keep it in my uh whatever android phone is my let's see what's going on with android at the time um uh and it's the service is great it really is uh it's way you know it it's it's really you know it, it at least at places i go especially in philadelphia coverage is fine it's it's very comparable to verizon and it really is it's just 50 bucks a month it is literally 50 you know, I guess I pay tax, but there's, there's no, uh, you know, my Verizon bill, you look at the detail, I hardly ever look at it, but I mean, I just pay the goddamn thing, but it is, you know, it, it's six pages long of, you know, courtesy charges. <laughs> yep. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm from like, my, I'm from a smaller town in Wisconsin. So uh, T-Mobile is a, a bit more challenging. Right. I learned my lesson uh, a, a while ago, but I mean, the, 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 the issue is that, you know, at the end, of, to your point, like the United States, like it's a fixed size and the number of large cities are a fixed amount, right. which means to have equivalent coverage, you have to spend the same amount of money. But if you have half as many subscribers or in the case of T- of Sprint, like a third as many subscribers, you have that means you have to charge every subscriber three X more or two right. X more to to even break even. Right. And and uh, and yeah, so it. I think they had a good run, but man, five G is going to be, a, a, I think, a tough transition for both of them if they're if they're not. Yeah, I, and I still think even I, you know, um, I, I still think that T Mobile, even you know, as good a run that they've had, and I think uh, what's his last name, Laguerre, John Laguerre, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, John Laguerre. I think he's yeah. been a great. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I think he's been a great CEO. Uh, I met him once. I was at out in San Francisco for an Apple event and T-Mobile was having a small event and somehow I, I got invited. Uh, and since I was already there, I just had to walk like three blocks. I went, uh, 
you know, it's not like I talked to him for a long time or anything, but I mean, it just, he just seems like an interesting charismatic guy. And I think what he's done with T-Mobile, uh, is really, really interesting. Cause like you said, a couple of years ago, it looked like maybe Sprint would buy T-Mobile and now it's clearly the other way around. He's staying as the CEO, the brand of the whole company is nothing. It's T-Mobile is eating Sprint and Sprint's going away, but that they're, they're getting, you know, Sprint's infrastructure and stuff like that. Um, I really do. I think ultimately uh, it was always sort of like there were two A carriers in in America, the the duopoly of AT&T and Verizon. T-Mobile elevated itself to like a second tier B carrier, maybe even a B plus carrier. And then Sprint has sort of fallen into being like a a C carrier. Right. And I feel like maybe T-Mobile and and. Uh, sprint combined could be like an a minus, you know, it could be a little bit more of a serious, you know, third competitor. I really think that that's better for the market. I, I, I hope for that. Yeah. And the other thing is, even with all T-Mobile success, uh, <laughs> Verizon and AT&T share of the market has decreased by 0.5 percent. Right. So, so like so basically T-Mobile's all their growth has been taken from Sprint. Mm. So it's like there's never been they've never broken into the AT&T and Verizon market. Again, they they were able they showed up the market such that AT&T and Verizon did drive down prices. Right. Uh, it, you know, so the, there is like I'm not denying that in the slightest. But the other thing is, you you know, there's, and there's lots of details like Sprint actually owns all this spectrum uh, that is very useful for 5G hmm. uh, that so that would be that's that's a huge thing for 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 T-Mobile to to get a piece of that. And yeah, I mean, the and the other thing is, if you look at other countries, it's very, you know, the, part of the reason the U.S. mobile market is so expensive and messed up is we almost had too much competition and there and no one, not enough carriers could get at scale. And there's been sort of a long term roll up, which seems bad. But I mean, you look at like SoftBank, for example, SoftBank was is in Japan. It was a third place carrier. Uh, they were willing to give give in to Apple's demands and take the iPhone when Docomo and, and the other I can't remember their carrier w- wouldn't. And and they shook up the entire market and they shook it up when there were only three carriers right, right. i mean it's not like three means no competition i, I right uh particularly in a purely commodity sort of market like at the end of the day like cell service is cell service and thanks to apple apple's really broken up that market to being just a commodity and if it's just a commodity uh, you know I, I three could certainly be sufficient to have a, yeah. a, a competitive market um more so than two. And, and so if you really do think 5G is going to be that hard of a transition, then uh, that that's probably the strongest argument in favor yep. of, of the merger. Yep. All right. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Oh, I guess we should talk. No. <laughs> I, didn't, I had a big scoop this week on Derek Fireball about the <laughs> Marzipan thing. But I... Oh, that's oh, that's where everyone's probably listening yeah, to this podcast. Yeah, probably everybody's well, listening. I, I appreciate. <laughs> I I said everything uh, I know about it, so I <laughs> I guess we should acknowledge it. But oh, I know I have one I have one thing to add. Uh, I, I so the uh, I was uh, we were in a Slack group. <laughs> oh where my we were god! Kind of I out some of these details. Uh, and I, it's interesting, like I guess maybe maybe I thought this many years ago that Apple would like leak like reset expectations by leaking to you. Right. And uh, and that clearly did not happen. Like I saw you kind of working this out over over uh, quite a while, whether this existed or didn't exist. Right. And uh, and I don't know. I know there's this people are never going to actually listen and believe that's not the case. But I will attest on your side that Apple's not like feeding you PR snippets. Right. Uh, and 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 well, I think you mentioned this. They, why would they? Because right. they, they'd basically be a giveaway. Right. Be, what's the warrant canary or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So the the accusation 
accusation, and I don't tell like tons of people doing it, but the, uh, there's a couple, and maybe a lot of people are thinking it is that okay, uh, Mark Gurman comes out with a story uh, in December that says Apple has a, a secret project called Marzipan uh, to get uh, to make it easier to write apps that you know universal apps that run on iPhones, iPads, and Macs. You make one app, it runs on all three. Uh, I wrote about it back then that it's that sounds great on the surface, and I can see why people hear that. I think, well, that sounds great. That would mean more apps and less work for developers and blah, blah, blah. But when you really look at the details, I'm not going to go into it here. I have an article I went about it. But having a system like the Mac where you have multiple windows and a menu bar and a mouse pointer and you don't have a touch screen is, uh, and all sorts of features in a Mac OS that, that iOS doesn't have and shouldn't have, um, you know, it's complicated. Um, but let's say everybody's excited about it, and German said it might be coming as early as this year at WWDC. Uh, so a lot of people are excited about this. But technically, German's at a technical level, what he reported is v- pretty vague. And as I wrote in my piece this week... And he was vague on the date, too. Yeah. He said it could come this yeah. year. He, well, like, he always he, covers he his ass like he, that. He wasn't... Uh, no, but it was it was more than a... It was yeah. more than a, of course, Apple could change right. their plans. Like, it, it was embedded in the rumor itself yeah. was... Uh, this is very fuzzy. It, it, it might... Yeah, that's fair to say. German didn't... Did, German didn't really push the this year thing. But, but everybody who's excited about it and who has, you know... Uh, hopes that this is true and that wants, you know, uh, awful lot. For example, there's just an awful lot of developers who write iOS code and the main framework for the UI in iOS is called UI kit. Um, and the main framework for that on the Mac that dates back to the next era in 1989 is called app kit. App kit and UI kit sort of serve the same roles. Um, but UI kit, because it came out in 2007 is sort of like, what would we do with a decade more of experience? What would we do differently? Uh, and UI kit reflects that. And there's a lot of things in UI kit that are nicer or more convenient or easier than app kit. Um, and there's a lot of programmers who, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, would like UI kit on the Mac instead of app kit or as an alternative app kit, et cetera. And so people are reading into this and they're hoping it's coming. And, and now they're, they're all hyped up. And then I write this article that says, uh, well, I looked, I've looked into this and, uh, a nobody who I've spoken to has ever heard of the name marzipan, except from German's story, which I'm not insinuating means that German is wrong and that that's not a real project. It could be, it could, you know, it, it certainly could be, um, uh, I'm just saying, but but if but if it was launching in two months, right. some more some people would have heard of it. Right, it is def- it's not launching in two months, or if it is, they've kept it secret in a way that seems impossible, given the way Apple works internally, software engineering. Uh, but I well, don't not just that, but but a, a feature like this right. would be so. I mean, the, the, probably the caveat is Swift, but the thing with Swift is it, that was a new to the world thing that didn't really impact the old stuff yes whereas it seems like this would be it's it's going to touch so many things within the company that that it's not like you can just surprise everyone i think so uh i I, you know i guess but but swift swift is the counter example right right? right. no one saw swift coming nobody it was a very small number of people and uh very small number of people within apple who knew about it before before the keynote um uh but I've heard of a different project with a different code name. And um, it, one of the things people are saying now that there's this story that came out about Apple having these, you know, identified all these people who leaked 
a lot of people have said to me, well, maybe some people were told Marzipan and some people were told this other name and some people were told another name. And then when the name Marzipan came out, they knew it came from this group because that's what they were told the name is. Uh, I've nobody at Apple who I've ever spoken to has ever heard of a single project having multiple code names for that reason. They might. W- it, it, it defeats the purpose of a code. Name. It does. It totally does. The reason I have a code name is to communicate right. is to talk about the, the project. Right. The, the UI project I've heard of, which I described in my article, it's a declarative of UI uh, framework where it's just a different way to make a UI and and it is cross-platform for uh, uh, iOS and Mac and I believe now it's also uh, watch uh, and maybe even TV but definitely watch um, has a different code name which I don't want to reveal because it hasn't leaked um, uh, but it's not coming at WWDC so the thing I know about is not coming at WWDC this year. Is there possibly a different thing that has some kind of, you know, run iPhone apps on Mac and it is called Marzipan and I just don't know anybody who's ever heard of it and it's not anywhere listed in radar internally in Apple uh, possible. Uh, but I don't think I think if that were coming this year, it I would have people who know about it. So I don't think that's coming at WWDC this year either. Um and so the speculation, like what you're alluding to, is, okay, Apple sees that there's lots of people who think something big and exciting along this line is coming next month. Uh, they don't want people to be disappointed when the keynote comes and goes and it doesn't doesn't appear. So uh, somebody from Apple PR, you know, picks up the phone, calls me and lets me know. That. I can't say that Apple PR told me this, but I, you know, you know, maybe I would want to dampen expectations or something like that. It seems like a lot, a lot of people think that's what happened, and that is not what happened at all and has never actually happened. I do have contact with Apple PR on a regular basis. Sometimes I contact them to ask questions. Sometimes they come to me with information. But uh, I've been thinking about it the last few days. To my recollection in my entire history of interaction with Apple PR, I don't think I've ever been contacted by Apple PR regarding a rumor. Even something that, you know, like this, where if the rumor doesn't pan out, people are going to be disappointed. Uh, and like you said, it's like the warrant canary. I think the reason they don't do that is if they started reaching out to me or anyone else to, to dampen expectations for false rumors, or let's say maybe not even false, but like a true rumor whose deadline has come and gone, you know, is going to slip. If they start doing that, then when they don't do it, like a rumor that X is coming at WWDC and they don't dampen the expectations. Well, then it just sort of verifies in advance that that's true. So they, they don't do, they don't do that. I, I've, everything I found out about this project was through, uh, as I call them, ground level sources, engineers, uh, I guess in this case, all engineers, uh, working throughout Apple. I laugh, but it's, you know, I guess it's not a most unreasonable theory. And the funny thing is I get accused of this, you know, multiple times, not, not even accusation, but I guess just the idea that this stuff is spoon fed. Uh, and then I'll say sometimes I'll public like I am right now on this podcast, but I'll say it on Twitter that no, my sources for this are all ground level, either engineers or designers or something like that. And then the people who cannot be shaken from this, like the conspiracy theory that I, the Apple PR just funnels stuff through this, through me. And I, I just, you know, put it out there. They say, well, who do you think told them to tell you? Apple PR. 
<laughs> it's like, no, that is definitely not how it works. Apple PR yeah. doesn't go. I, I just imagine Apple PR doesn't trust Apple PR doesn't trust Apple employees as far as they can throw. Them. No, they're not going to trust them to pass on messages to journalists. Well, no, but think about this. Think about if you're an engineer working on UIKit and you're, uh, you know, t- cracking away on uh, something for iOS 12. Right. And, you know. Deadline's coming up. You're working hard. And uh, someone from Apple PR comes by your office. Knock, knock. <laughs> hey, Ben. Hey, uh, here's what we'd like you to do. Reach out to John Gruber <laughs> and let him know that. In a way that we can't control and, right. and can't trace. And let him know that, yeah, you, ever, you see that thing about this uh, quote unquote marzipan thing? You, you know that. Yeah. Tell him that's not that's not happening in June. No, they just they would just if they were going to do it, they would literally just call me and and talk to me. But that that's never happened. And for good reason. They they, you know, they're the only sane way for them to deal with rumors is to never acknowledge them in any way, no matter how false. I mean, I well, they, they have tam- I, I think they do via like the Wall Street Journal. Right. What was that big one a few years ago? The one that, that I uh, remember was the nine hundred ninety nine dollars starting price for the original iPad. Oh, that's right. Because it was in the opposite direction. They actually spread a false rumor. That's what we think. That's, no, I've never heard anybody say what happened. I, I'd love to know. I don't remember the byline on that story and who got it. Um, it was it was Kane, wasn't it? I think it might have been. Uh I think it might have been. I didn't want to, I didn't want to butcher her right. name. But uh, wait, the, I the I times, I, I don't know that that's ever happened either, but the times when, it, like, I think it, they might have, Apple PR might have strategically, at the, from the highest executive levels of the company, strategically leaked something. They Every time I think it might have happened, it has always and only ever been to straight reporters on the Apple beat at major news organizations, generally only the New York times and wall street journal that they'll, they, they will give something, you know, it seems like sometimes they might give something like a, a expectation setting sources familiar with the matter leak. But what I, what I mean by straight reporter is somebody who doesn't write like I do, like as a under, you know, with like a columnist with a voice and opinion, somebody who's just a straight front of the newspaper, front page of the newspaper reporter, you know, who writes in that sort of objective uh, from that objective perspective as a reporter. That's the only time I think they'd ever, they ever have might've ever done it. And even then I'm not sure they ever have. Yeah, no, it, there, there's, um, yeah, there's definitely been ones where they've, they've tamped expectations down. Like, I think there was one about there being no new hardware at WWDC a couple years ago. Um, uh, that was in the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like they, they, it has been done, but you're right. It, like, the vector is a very well-established one, right? It, yeah. And I think it is actually almost always the Wall Street Journal. I don't even remember there being one in the New York Times. I think it's it's the Wall Street Journal will report something. Apple's going to happen. It's like two weeks before an event, and it, it's managing expectations yeah. one way or the other. And um, even the, even the and, no new hardware at WWDC isn't, necessarily regarding any specific rumor, you know, it's just setting expectations overall, you know, right. The one I remember that didn't happen and it was a, like a warrant canary was the original iPhone, uh, in January, 2007, because what had leaked 
was just period. Apple is building a, a phone, right? And you know how it leaked. It leaked from the goddamn carriers who Apple had to talk to. Um, and, you know, with good reason, you know, it proved to be good reason why Apple didn't show them the iPhone because they would have fucking blabbed about that, too. Um, but the fact that Apple was building a phone wasn't quite knowledge, but it was, you know, everybody believed it was true. And everybody everyone was every, everyone was expecting a phone that day. Yeah. And everybody. Yeah. Everybody was expecting a phone that day. And I remember getting there. So Macworld Expo started on. I think it started on a Monday, but whatever the day before it was, I got to San Francisco and uh, I was walking down Market Street and I saw James Duncan Davidson uh, uh, at a, outside a coffee shop. And I knew and I was like, hey, and we sat down and we were talking about it and we were like, uh, we didn't have phones. to. Check. It's so funny. We didn't have phones to check, but we were talking about how we kept like reloading news sites to see if anything came out, like to say, hey, there's not going to be a phone tomorrow because it, it was so rampant that Apple was going to the belief that Apple was going to announce a phone that nobody knew anything about. Uh, and the fact that nobody, not the Wall Street Journal, not the you know, nobody had any kind of thing that that said otherwise. It was like, I think this is definitely going to happen. I remember talking with Duncan about it. We were like, we talked ourselves. We we started like drinking coffee thinking like this is they're not built. They're not going to do a phone. And by the end of it, just the fact that they hadn't refuted it or, or tampened expectations that there'd be a phone, that the Apple was dead silent on or off the record about the phone, uh, a phone we were convinced by the end of the conversation that we were willing to bet money that there was some kind of phone, probably an iPod phone coming out the next day. Yeah. And, and if you think about the presentation, uh, jobs really leveraged that fact that everyone was expecting a phone, right? That's why the, we're announcing three products today was, was so effective. Right. And he gets it the right away. Today's right. people meant to stay. Everyone's like, Oh, it's going to be a phone. Right. And we're announcing three products. Oh, they're all, it's going to be a phone and what else? Right. But the, the, like he, so he built that presentation knowing that everyone knew they were announcing a phone, Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. which, which is part of what made the presentations, you know, so brilliant. Right. It was, uh, a widescreen video iPod, a breakthrough Revo internet communication device, and, yeah, and a, a revolutionary internet communication and a device revolutionary phone, right? Yeah, it was uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was a, a widescreen video <laughs> player iPod <laughs> and breakthrough breakthrough internet communication device and a and a revolutionary phone. <laughs> yep. And if I bought and it, the best, and again, the, the best part, no one, no one cheered for the revolutionary internet communicator no. or the breakthrough internet no. communicator. Like I was like, yeah, it is cheer, cheer. Oh yeah. I remember okay. thinking, I, and, but I remember thinking that's the part that I remember, changes the world. I remember thinking in the audience, like, what the hell are they talking about with that? Like, I got it. Like the two, two of the three I got, I was like, okay, widescreen video iPod. Yeah. Because the iPods that played video at the time didn't have big enough screens. Or I was like, oh, I bet the whole thing will be a screen. Like I, I, when he said that, I, I really did think like something roughly like what the iPhone form factor was but i i just thought you know i didn't think it would be a touch screen i just figured it would they just use the whole thing you know have like little buttons at the bottom for play pause and you know <laughs> it's very funny but anyway i did not i don't think apple i don't think apple really gives two shits what i write about uh, the marzipan thing honestly because it's well, all, all along go ahead well the other thing to keep in mind is that uh and I mean that sincerely. I, I'm not saying that Apple PR doesn't care what I write about. I think they do. I think, you know, I, I'm not trying to brag. I'm actually, you know, 
I'm just trying to acknowledge the obvious that I, I'm what I write is influential about Apple. But on this Marzipan thing in particular, it's too easy to get for us and the people who like listen to the show to get caught up uh, thinking about that. What we care about a cross platform UI layer that would bridge iOS to Mac like people listening to the show, we care about that. That's big news. There might be a lot of people listening to the show who are going to be disappointed if what I wrote this week is correct and WWDC comes and goes and that doesn't get announced. But in terms of like the real world, <laughs> that's what I just said was gibberish, right? 99% of all people who own an iPhone have no idea what the hell a cross-platform UI layer between UI kit and app kit is. <laughs> No idea. They don't care. I've just started speaking Greek to them. So the type of rumors that Apple really cares about are the type of things that actually affect, you know, 99% of people, the type of thing that would get on the front page of newspapers the next day, right? Let's say... Mar well, well, one could say, one, one could say that uh, that's, why, that's why this marzipan rumor, they would leak to you instead of, the, instead of the, uh, mm. the Wall Street Journal, because the people that do care will read you. So uh, <laughs> I, you might have just undone the case against yourself. <laughs> we can't. There's no way to... Ref there's no way to... You're right. There's no way to get out of this. Uh, well, all I can say is you have to take me at my word. <laughs> well, I do. And, and uh, as all uh, long podcasts that are nominally about Apple must do, we managed to circle back to the Steve Jobs iPhone introduction keynote. Yeah. So <laughs> I think we have we have accomplished our mission here. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, ben, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm I'm deeply disappointed that we can't get together and watch Sixers Bucks playoff games this year. But I do have the f hey. I, I told you if the Sixers if the Sixers go to the finals, uh, we are we are. I've I've gone to finals games the last two years, uh, and uh, if the Warriors make it, I plan to make it a third. And, and if the Sixers make it, you got well. You've already it. said the Warriors are going to win the whole thing, so the Warriors will be there. If if they're playing the Sixers, I, it would be very hard to not go. To, to see them play over at the, uh, uh, what do they call the place? Oracle. The Oracle. Oracle Arena. <laughs> the Oracle Orifice. <laughs> That's right. Everybody can find out more about your writing. I mean, I can't believe there's anybody listening who isn't already a subscriber, but at uh, Stratechery com, which has a we I should mention a redesign, a visual branding redesign, a new website, a new logo, uh, uh, that has launched in between the time you were last on this show. And now I cannot let it go without complimenting you on an excellent, excellent redesign uh, that I enjoy every single I, I think about it every single day when I look at the newsletter in my email and I think, damn, that looks good. Well, thank you. I, and uh, credit to Brad Ellis, who made the made the logo mark. Uh, but yeah, the, not just the redesign, but also if you go there, you can now much easier way to sort of get access to the archives. Search is dramatically enhanced and then uh, being able to sort of browse the site by organized by concept or company or topic. The that was really the the there's the ultimate goal was to get the uh, access to what I've written before easier and, and whatnot. But because humans are humans and we care about visual things, uh, adding on a new logo made it all made it all look nice. Yeah, I even like the way and I, at first I didn't like it, but I like the way on the homepage now where the. Uh, it's like the subscribers daily update. You get it. They're all the most recent four are all at the top. Uh, and it is, it's sort of like a, it. I like it. I didn't like it at first. I thought, ah, oh, the new article should be the first thing on the page, but I like this because, uh, it fits in with the idea of it's like respect for like a subscriber who's not a daily reader. Like you're a subscriber, you're going to read it at least every week. But here, if you want to just catch up, click, 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 you could open these four things and tabs and there they are. 
Well, the other thing that the other thing that I do that uh, if you go to a single article, like you follow a link on Twitter, you'll notice that those articles are not on the top. Yeah. Now they're at the very bottom of the page. Right. And the reason is if you're following a link to an article, you probably want to read the article. So I want right. to get the other crap out of your way. Right. Uh, and, and then when you get to the end and, um, you know, because I, I don't really push this subscription at all. It's I mean, but it, it like it's there, uh, but I'm not going to like shove it in your face. Right. Uh, and and I, you know, I ideally you read the free articles regularly and then eventually you're tempted to give the uh, the four pay stuff a try. And, and then I got a, I got a month to hook you. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's as good as ever, and it's been a, it's been a particularly good week, in my opinion, with the the stuff on Amazon and Apple and and et cetera and so forth. So thanks, and then you've also got if the people enjoy your the sound of your voice, uh, you've got your regular podcast, uh, Exponent Exponent FM, uh, with your co-host. Uh, James Allworth. James yeah. Allworth. Have you have you moved the talk show to? Uh, oh, you're hosted on your own site, so mm. you you already switched to HTTPS. Yes, uh, I got to. I, I need to switch exponent to HTTPS. Uh, yeah, that's like the only. <laughs> there's more coming. Uh, literally, I'm in the midst. I've actually broken it, sealed. It's, we're, I'm moving to a new server soon. Uh, but HTTPS was HTTPS for everything is probably the only modernization I've done to Daring Fireball in the last couple of years. But it is all HTTPS. Yeah, I, I, I launched with um yeah I launched with HTTPS on Stratechery. I mean, which was uh, one, it was just sort of best practice at the time. But two, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to yeah. monetize it at, at some point. But the, I mean, the podcast, like, why bother? Uh, but now this, if, I think in Chrome or at least the yeah. newest version, it, Google's turned on the this site is dangerous, yeah. which is a little over the top, but. But yeah, yeah, I don't like it. I think it's a bad move on Google's part. I don't, uh, I'm not, I don't really buy the argument that everything should be HTTPS. Uh, I don't think it hurts. It's a perfect example. The way, why, there is no reason that that exponent needs to be right. HTTPS. Right. But uh, you know, and Daring Fireball is a, a reasonable example. I don't have user accounts. There's no, you know, it's still better that it's, it, you know. It's better for some reasons, but it's not a big deal. And for downloading a podcast, I mean, who gives a crap? Honestly, I mean, but what do I know? Alas. <laughs> anyway, great job on the redesign. The Brad Ellis, a friend of mine, too, uh, a very talented designer, and he really nailed it. I love the the mark of the uh, the pen that's also a circuit is so it's God, it's that's really good. I think I told you this. I think I told you this privately, but it's good enough that it makes me jealous. Well, hey, well, well I mean, you you you've, <laughs> you called your site Daring Fireball. I called Meister Checkery, so I think <laughs> you're going to have bragging rights till the end of time. So. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. All right. Talk to you later. All right. This new innovative modular design provides a full upgrade path. This means that a customer can purchase an entry-level laser printer knowing that when the business demands more performance, the laser rider can be upgraded without loss of the original investment made in the engine. Also, the new second-generation engine has a maximum expected lifetime three times longer than before. Other important benefits are a longer-lasting replaceable toner cartridge system that offers darker blacks while retaining the crisp characters and graphics the previous laser writers have been known for. A 200-page input tray, including an optional envelope cassette. 
and face-down or face-up output trays which provide enhanced paper handling capabilities. Upgradeability and the improved design and components of the LaserWriter 2 printer engine offer customers flexibility and a significant price-performance improvement over Apple's previous LaserWriters. The LaserWriter 2 NTX, the LaserWriter 2 NT, and the LaserWriter 2 SC. Three unique printers at three price points, capable of satisfying a broad range of customer needs, from general office productivity to high-end desktop publishing. With the LaserWriter 2 family of printers, Apple demonstrates their commitment to extending the lead.